then flings Hogan into a lightning. Into a lightning. That'd be wow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by the winner of the Triple Cage Exploding Ring Deathmatch to determine the host of The Tonight Show, Alec Pridgen. Oh, oh, sorry, Al, I, I just noticed the contract actually reads The Show Tonight, not The Tonight Show. Oh. I knew I should have had a second look at that contract Chavo Guerrero wrote up. That explains it, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you don't mind. How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? <laughs> it's going okay. We are we are currently sitting in my uh, apartment slash recording studio, one day away from me moving out of it. Therefore, we have <laughs> towels and blankets and afghans and such everywhere to try to cover up the amount of <laughs> solid walls that I have that would be echoing noise everywhere. So hopefully the sound is okay tonight, but we'll see. Going with more of a lived-in kind of look. Yes, I have a I have a mattress leaning precariously against the opening to my kitchen to try and block that nightmare of reflected audio. <laughs> if any sudden noise happens, probably the mattress falling over. Yes, most likely. <laughs> I, uh, I I hope that won't happen tonight, but we'll see. If you hear me scream like a little girl, that's what happened. <laughs> tonight, we are taking a look at Road Wild 1999. It'll take more than attitude to ride out of here. That's probably a shot at WWF's then-current attitude marketing. Yeah. But it's a little strange, given that it's, at that point, been around two years since the WWF started that advertising campaign, which I guess does make it one of the more current wrestling pop culture references. True, yeah. (laughs) Normally, they're like 10 years out of date. This is only two. Right, right, yeah. Road Wild 1999 was held on August 14th, 1999, at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in Sturgis, South Dakota, in front of 5,500 fans. None paid. It earned 200,000 pay-per-view buys, over 120,000 less than last year, but on the upper tier for 1999. Only four shows in 1999 got more buys, and only Super Brawl's 450,000 by a really notable amount. (laughs) Now, I think you said there were some matches that were originally going to be on the show and got cut. Yeah, so there's two matches we actually don't get in the show. Uh, one of them was supposed to be a match between Fit Finley and the First Family. They don't say who. I'm guessing Hugh Morris or Barbarian, probably. However, Fit Finley injured his leg really, really badly at a house show. Ooh. It's one of the things, we haven't covered this show yet, but he wins that Junker Invitational trophy. And it's like the worst luck you can have because he wins it. And then like two weeks later, he really injures his leg and, and he's out till Starcade. I mean, just about the worst luck you could have is being in the Junkyard Invitational in the first place. But. Yes. <laughs> but making it out of it and still winning something is that. Yeah. The other one we don't get, which is kind of strange, is they've been building up throughout the shows that Mona, who is the future Molly Holly, is wrestling. She'll be on Nitros and Thunders wrestling. Mm-hmm. And she split off at this point from Randy Savage's group, which has Medusa in it. Apparently, they were scheduled to have a match, but they just don't have it on the show. Huh. Weird. Yeah. So we get one women's match for, what, all of the series? Yeah, yeah. I believe 
Yeah, I don't yeah. think we got more than one of them, right? 96 yeah. is the only one we got, I believe. Jeez. Yeah. It's the final show of the series, so surely they've worked out all of the problems, designed the perfect set, and will put on some amazing matches, right? To find out, let's go to the ring. I'm the world's heavyweight champion right now, and when I get to Sturgis, I'm going to kick your butt, brother. Big Sexy wants a piece of Hollywood. I'm out here, brother. You and me, finally, for that title, you have got it. I'd like to bring Hollywood Hogan out here at the broadcast booth. The change really portrays where I'm coming from, you know what I'm saying? I cleaned up my act, cleaned up the whole deal. Wait a minute, this ain't happening. Hollywood Hogan goes after Rick Steiner and Sid Vicious. Kevin Nash is, Kevin Nash is in. Oh, no! At Sturgis, if you beat me, I'll quit this business. You'll never see me again. If I beat you and Sturgis, brother, you're history. Say goodbye to Hollywood Hogan, because Saturday night will be his last match. I'll put it on the line, big man. The show opens with a video package covering the lead-up to our main event, a reformed Hulk Hogan versus Kevin Nash, with the loser forced to leave wrestling for good. A retirement in wrestling, I'm sure that'll stick. Oh, yeah. By the way, is it me or does that music sound very, very familiar? Oh, yeah, I I feel like it did. I can't can't place it. I like, feel like that's the intro music for every show this year. <laughs> it might be. Might it's, be. A, it's just a generic action filler music they use to put clips over. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I, if I look back at like Slamboree and Spring Stampede, it's the same. It thing. might be. It might be, yeah. Super shaky helicopter footage brings us in as host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to Road Wild 1999. This year's set is basically last year's set, with the addition of actual bleachers for some of the fans to sit on, though, alongside the normal collection of motorcycles, of course. It works fine, but it's a little disappointing to not see any further evolution since the previous year. By the way, is the bleachers why we have an actual attendance count? Because they can just sort of go, bleachers hold this many people and this. (laughs) Because, I mean, no, I don't think one bought tickets for this thing, right? That's kind of the whole thing. Yeah, no no one bought tickets. I think they did an estimated count in previous years, but yeah, I don't know if it might be a little... I mean, some of them had a very broad estimated count. Yes, yes. This time, Tony and co-host Mike Tanay are rocking the denim, while Bobby Heenan has opted for a plain black t-shirt and baseball cap. I think Heenan is about as tired of the biker theme as I am at this point. Yeah, he's the one kid that doesn't like Halloween. he will put a black shirt on. It's Halloween, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Tony brings up Hogan's return to the red and yellow color scheme. Heenan says, Hogan or Nash's face might go on Mount Rushmore. That's not what the match is about. No. Tony says, Hogan's return to his old persona might be a short-lived run if he loses to Nash. Tanay says the impact of the main event will be felt for years to come. Oh, sure, sure. I'm sure it won't be done in, say, under three months. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Tanay references the finger poke of doom, of all things to demonstrate how much Hogan and Nash's relationship has changed. You, you couldn't just talk about their early NWO run, today. You had to bring that up. <laughs> yep, that would be the worst thing they possibly could. Yep. <laughs> Tony runs down some other matches on the card and also notes WCW is giving away an American Iron Horse motorcycle. Good news, Al. I didn't get us any kind of sponsorship deal. Oh. I mean, they're still around, though, right? Um... 
not not as such. Oh, that that might be a problem. I, I did find there actually is a site that still uses the American Iron Horse name and uh-huh. actually like their web address. It looks like that is exclusively for replacement parts for American Iron oh. Horse motorcycles. But it does not appear the company that actually made the motorcycles is around anymore. They're just there's a guy that specializes in repairing them. So in theory, I could buy all the parts separately and then put my own bike together. I would love to see you try that. I would not like to try that. <laughs> you film a video of you doing that and post it to YouTube, man, and we will get like a billion views, and then I'll look for a new co-host because you probably killed yourself in the process. <laughs> it wouldn't wouldn't end well for anybody, no. Heenan, as they discuss Rodman versus Savage, which, yes, is a match that's happening tonight, yep. claims that Rodman arrived in a limo that was three blocks long. That seems impractical. Yeah, how would you turn in that thing? Very carefully. <laughs> I guess so. Tony throws to a video package for our first match, which kind of hyperspeeds its way through Rey Mysterio Jr., Eddie Guerrero, and Kidman, allying against Raven, Vampiro, and <sighs> the insane clown posse. Yeah. So, our first match is The Deadpool. That's Violent J and Shaggy 2 Dope. Word. I believe those stupid names. Of the Insane Clown Posse and Vampiro with Raven versus Eddie Guerrero, Kidman, and Rey Mysterio Jr. in a six-man tag match. The referee for this one is Johnny Boone. Raven, of course, lost his flock from the storyline last year. He's been kind of listless since that, trying to find his way again. He befriends Vampiro, who brings in the Insane Clown Posse, because apparently they have a shared love of music and wrestling. Although, I hesitate to call anything the ICP does music, but technically speaking, it's what it is. Okay. Raul, Ray, and Kidman were a team pretty consistently throughout this time. Kidman, of course, breaking off from the flock to stop doing heroin, which is a good good step up. It's for a really him. positive life choice. I yeah, think yeah. I can agree on that, yeah. Best character change you could make. While they're a duo... Eddie Guerrero has been out for a while. He infamously had a really bad car accident. And he's back before 90 days because he knows from recent history that if you're not good with the back office, meaning they don't think you're like this huge draw, they might just sort of use the contract there to fire you while you're injured. Right, yeah. Like they did to say Steve Austin or uh, Six and other people. Yes. So he, while he looks great here, apparently he was not feeling great because he was making sure he was back for the 90 days from a serious car accident. Man. So, uh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, basically it's just that Eddie can be trusted. He's a good guy now. Because obviously Eddie and Ray have a very tumultuous history in WCW. A fraught relationship, one might describe it as, yes. yes. The Deadpool entered to some kind of awful hard rock slash rap combo. I'm guessing that's ICP music, maybe, but I don't actually know any ICP songs, so it could also just be a replacement on the Peacock version if they didn't want to pay for the music rights. Yeah, I've sadly heard a bit of the same Posse, having watched a film where they do the entire soundtrack, which is amazing, I tell you. You have no one to blame but yourself for that, man. That is true. That is true. I don't blame them for that. I mean, I could blame them for making the music, but that's... Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean... But I... So this does sound kind of sound like their stuff, but it's weird there's no lyrics. That's kind of the issue here is they got these same composts who were apparently a big fan of wrestling to be in your wrestling company and you don't pay him to perform. Yeah. I mean, play their backing track and have them sing slash have rap them rap on the way to the ring like yeah. our truth did and stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't know why they don't do that. Yeah, it is an odd decision to avoid that. Vampiro uses an insane clown posse shirt in lieu of a personality during the entrance, but discards it once he's in the ring. Good call. It is notable that him and one of the other guys match until he takes the shirt up, obviously. And then I remember the insane clown posse doesn't dress like his friend. Yeah. Yeah. So they had two shirts that matched, but they gave one to Vampiro. Well, probably didn't fit the other guy. He's quite a bit chunkier. That's true, but you could have gotten you could have gotten a third shirt just by avoid. So close to matching. Guerrero, Kidman, and Kidman's little brother. Oops, sorry, that's an unmasked Rey Mysterio dressing just like Kidman. Yes. Come out to Guerrero's theme song. They get spinny pyro. Tony builds up the size of the rally and all of the bikers here to watch, noting that they're here on Harleys, American Iron Horses, and Hondas, Yamahas, and Kawasaki's. Based on the rules of prior years, I'm pretty sure Tony just turned heel. Yeah, I'll say that was a whole point of contention with Medusa's one match. Right. And Jericho, even last year, oh, like, yeah. on my Honda motorcycle. <laughs> That's true. Guerrero, Mysterio, and Kidman knock the ICP out of the ring and beat up Vampiro. Kidman nearly stomps on Mysterio in the process. <laughs> Mysterio's like going for kind of a leg drop. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just at the exact same moment that Kidman is stomping the guy. And Kidman kind of like pulls back for just a second and then finishes it. So Ray's out of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get the trombone noise again. Oh, good. I was so worried it wouldn't be back this year. <laughs> Kidman and Vampiro start the match proper, but Kidman, Guerrero, and Mysterio switch off beating Vampiro up inside and outside the ring. The platform is back this year, but it's much, much lower than before. So much so, it's kind of weird that they even bothered to have one. Yeah, it's like three inches off the ground, right? Only thing I can think of is it might be something important for stability of the ring, like mm. if the ground's too soft or something. That's, yeah, maybe. Thanks. So Tony repeatedly calls the ground asphalt outside afterwards, which I don't think it is. Gravel is not asphalt, no. Vampiro doesn't quite seem to be on the same page as the others in a couple spots. He awkwardly stops midway as Guerrero slides him into the ring at one point, and later falls quite a bit early on a Guerrero leg lariat. Mm-hmm. In the background, we can see ads for the rally's food options, including butterfly fries, which are, I looked this up, basically a, a potato that has been spiral cut while remaining all attached, and then deep fried. So it's like one really, really long and complicated potato chip. Huh. It sounds delicious, actually. <laughs> but, I, I, I have to see one in person to judge. I think. Yeah, it's it's basically if you picture like the thinness of a potato chip and that fried. Yeah. But it's all one long spiral cut potato that's kind of curled in on itself. Huh. It's really interesting to to look at. I, I guess it might be more convenient to carry around. You won't spill. Yeah. Individual chips. I guess. Yeah. A vampiro backspinning Enziguri on Guerrero turns the tide. And Vampiro and the ICP triple-team Guerrero as Mysterio and Kidman's protest distract Boone. Today mentions the ICP named their first album after Dean Malenko's father. This is not quite true. First of all, it was their fourth album, and it was apparently a lucky accident. They did reference Dean Malenko's name intentionally, but added The Great just to give it kind of a carnival feel. Oh. And they accidentally therefore recreated the nickname of Dean's father, Boris the Great Malenko. Gotcha. <laughs> Vampiro and the ICP trade off wearing Guerrero down, earning two off of a Vampiro sort of rock bottom. Tony says Hogan will face Nash, his literally biggest nemesis. 
Hogan has previously battled not one, but two guys that went by the giant. (laughs) Yeah, true. Guerrero eventually crotches dope on the top rope, and Jay pulls a rock a rock, clearly seeing that but leaving anyway. Mm -hmm. So dope gets superplexed. Tags to Jay and Mysterio, and Mysterio quickly gets two with a springboard moonsault, but when he spins through the ropes 619 style, Raven trips him up and pulls him outside, flinging him to the steps for about a .3 Cena. Pretty good. Decent distance, but there's no hit whatsoever of a flip. That's true, yeah, yeah. Vampiro hits the nail in the coffin on the platform and sends Mysterio to the steps again for .01 Cena. Yeah. (laughs) They almost jiggle a little. (laughs) Right. And keep in mind, these are the steps no longer attached to the ring whatsoever. Right, yeah, they're just sitting on a, yeah. Back in, the Deadpool trade-off destroying Mysterio, intentionally angering Kidman to distract Boone for some rule-breaking. They get two off Jay's sidewalk slam, Jay's elbow drop, and Vampiro's power slam. Raven pretends to cry for Mysterio. Mysterio gets a boot up on Dope's stupid-looking arm-windmilling charge and hits his split-legged moonsault. Tanae is actually calling it correctly this time. It is indeed split-legged. Yeah. Tagged to Kidman, who drop kicks the ICP, but Vampiro charges and everybody gets into fight. Mysterio hits the... <sighs> Bronco Buster. Mm-hmm. In the chaos, Kidman dodges a Vampiro thrust kick, and Vampiro nails dope. Mysterio and Guerrero dispose of Jay and Vampiro, and Kidman hits the shooting star press on dope for the three count and the win. Raven is a second too late to save. But wouldn't it have been a DQ if Raven saved anyway? Yes, I would think. I would think so. (laughs) Guerrero, Kidman, and Mysterio celebrate as Raven mopes in the center of the ring. Thoughts on this one? That was a pretty solid opening match, all things considered. They were smart to have the majority of the action on the one side be Vampiro, mm-hmm. who, despite complaints about him having no personality, which are thousand percent true, he is solid in the ring. Yes. His timing isn't always still 100%, but no one's is. He is a very solid hand in the ring. I, yeah. I will point out little critiques on, sure. on his wrestling from time to time, but I think he's a good in-ring performer. I mean, of the three, if you're going to pick the bulk of the match, yes. Totally. The Right choice, yes. Yeah, exactly. This is a really good showing, actually, for the faces, I think, because Ray and Eddie especially really put over the ICP, of all people. Mm-hmm. They make him look really strong. You know, Ray's one of the guys everyone could throw around. I mean, I could throw him around, realistically. I'm not that much bigger than he is to begin with. Violent Jake and, you know, Power Slam, all these things, you know, look like, you know, British Bulldog, power-wise, they could do mm-hmm. like that. Ray taking that power bomb that dropped, like, toss one, Ballsier than I am, that's true. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because, like, the Liger bomb, you're controlled, like, 99% of the way. Right. It's really just the, the end of it, he let go. But with that one, he basically scoops him up and sort of tosses him, and he takes a real slow fall and drops He just chucks him completely airborne, yeah. Yeah. So he completely leaves his hand. It's like the jackknife, except he's throwing him forward instead of just letting go. Right, yeah. Kind of like a caper toss, almost. <laughs> yes. And it's a ray toss, I guess. My real problem with this match is there's not a lot of story to it. There's not, like, one guy isolated for a long period. There's actually two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah, they the whole bit with Eddie's isolated for a while, and then Ray comes in, and then Ray's isolated for a while. Right. Yep. Kidman's own that looks the best, if you, you know, kayfabe. He doesn't really take it down all that much at all in this match. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny how 
how little he's involved in this match, especially given what you said about Guerrero earlier on. Yeah. You'd think Guerrero would be the one that they'd have just run in to break things up rather than the focus of one of the face in peril segments. The only thing I could think of is it might be a wrestling connection because I don't know if they ever overlapped or how many matches they had against each other, but obviously Red Eddie wrestled in Mexico. Right, and so did Vampiro. Yes. Yeah. Back in his early days when he was the his Lestat gimmick. So they might be figuring these guys will meld better with Vampiro than Kidman will right, at right. this stage, yeah. It's hard to say, but yeah, that'd be my guess anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like so it's weird because they do a face in peril spot, then a second face in peril spot, and then the ending is just kind of just happens. Yes, yeah. They don't like tease that the teamwork is better on the face side. It just suddenly is in this one instance and then they win. Right. Yeah, for me, this felt a lot longer than it actually was, owing partially to a surprising amount of slowdown between moves and to the decision, as you pointed out, to give it two fairly long face and peril segments for Guerrero and Mysterio, respectively. They kind of blur together and seem to kind of stall the match out a bit. Yeah, true. The faces do get some good dynamic offense in the early part of the match, and the ending's pretty active, but the middle just dragged for me, much more than I'd expected for a match involving Mysterio, Guerrero, and Kidman, though, like I said, Kidman's kind of barely involved at all beyond running in to make saves. Yeah. The ICP only seem to have a few moves, but they do a reasonable job with the ones they have. And Vampiro, despite a few weird botches, does a good job kind of directing the action for the heel side, Mm -hmm. but... This just didn't have the energy I was expecting it to, especially for an opening match. No, I can see that, yeah. With the slowdown, it's weird because a six-man match, you have two more people involved, mm-hmm. obviously, that's how math works. But that allows you to have more tagging in and out. People can stay fresher, and you can keep the action going. You could have shorter face-and-peril spots, like not the prolonged one you'd have in a normal two-on-two tag match. Yeah. You'd have more of those, but they don't. They treat it much more like a regular tag match. They just do that section twice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I do wonder what the point of Raven is, though. It's it's an odd thing, right? It's yeah. I think they're just kind of looking for something to do with him now that the flock angle is done. Yeah. They're just trying to figure out what's his role. I think he does an interesting job with this kind of like even weirder version of his character. He's got a little bit of face paint on one side. Yeah. Even. He had kind of like an onk or something. He had some sort of marking on it. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's an interesting role, but... It does feel a little bit strange that this guy's like, this isn't you know, a normal manager character. Yeah. This is an actual wrestler. So you kind of feel like he should be more involved than he is. Yeah, yeah. We'll see, because we have a second six-man match in the show. We'll see more like you expect that dynamic to be with the outside person. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I just don't see the connection with Raven and these guys. And the fact that he's a, like the wrestler with the non-performer, when there already is one. There's just two of them. Right, yeah. I, I guess, I don't know, the only connection I can think of is Raven does commonly wear music shirts, yeah. you know, band shirts, but uh, I'm not sure that ICP is his style. <laughs> yeah. I do like his Hellboy shirt in the show. Yes, yes, that was that was cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has some fun little interaction on the outside as well, where he, he's mocking Ray a bit, like he's asking if, he, if he's hurt or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he really does a good job with, with his character bits, and it, it just is weird to see Raven used that way. Yeah, exactly. Well, I know you love this match, Bob, so they're going to do it again at Fall Brawl. Screw you, Alec. (laughs) I will note that um, the ICP in WCW, which is a lot of acronyms in a row, um, is not a long-term thing. They don't really do much more after the whole Fall Brawl angle ends up. Oh, okay. By December of this year, actually, this year, that being 1999, that is, 
They actually formed their own company, JCW. Right. Which, if you're wondering, is Juggalo Championship Wrestling. I believe it's also champion wrestling, too. Yeah, it is sometimes called that. Yes. But yeah, so they formed their own company to sort of fill the wrestling desires. Vampiro would rebound pretty well. Vampiro would replace them with the Misfits, aka that band whose logo you know, but don't know the band or their songs. Right. Yes, I, I remember that match on Starcade 1999 not at all fondly. No. <laughs> I believe they stayed around until Debbie tried to copyright all of their logos, and they said no. <laughs> like, no, that's literally the only thing people know about us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, lastly, it's weird that it's not mentioned at all, and he didn't have the belt, but Ray's actually cruiserweight champion right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think he wore the belt for this show, but I don't know. He was too busy dressing like his big brother. I think that could keep his pants up better. <laughs> but yeah, Ray's uh, cruiserweight champion at this point. On the Thunder after this show, he'd lose it to Lenny Lane. Oh, good gosh. Yeah, this is beginning. This is them really leading into the Lenny and Lodi angle. Right, 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 right. Tony advertises WCW.com, then throws to a video package for the next match, which choppily covers the reunion of Harlem Heat after Stevie Ray rescued Booker T from the Jersey Triad. Meanwhile, in Sturgis, a lady almost gets run over by a motorcycle, but fortunately the driver was paying attention. <laughs> Our second match is Canyon and Bam Bam Bigelow of the Jersey Triad versus Harlem Heat, Booker T, and Stevie Ray for Bigelow and Canyon's WCW Tag Team Championship. Referee for this one is Charles Robinson. So while he's completely absent from this show, Ric Flair is a big part of all the build to a bunch of these matches. Basically, for a while, he was the WCW president for life. And yes, he's not president now, in case you're wondering. Don't, don't look into the, how that works. <laughs> but so as part of his sort of tyrannical rule, he let the Jersey Triad be his henchmen. So when they won the tag titles by, of course, cheating, he allowed the, all three to be champions. Oh, okay. They used the Freebird rule, as it's yes. often called in wrestling. And of course, they would cheat even while still having a three-person advantage. Right. We haven't covered it yet, but there's one match, Wise Champions, where they could change during the match. <laughs> like DDP is like at ringside. He's like, oh, I'll take over for a while. On the flip side, Booker T would finally get his brother TV Ray to leave the NWO, which is just as well because it's already ending anyhow. It's like, leave the group now. Like, well, it's already over, but sure, I'll do it. <laughs> the last guy to leave a party, I guess. But yeah, so they reform their successful tag team. And in the build to this, they have a non title win over the Jersey Triad. Bigelow and Canyon enter to Canyon's theme. Bigelow's title belt pops free from his waist on the way down, and he hurriedly scoops it back up, looking sheepish. Yes. He and Canyon laugh over it as they make their way to the ring. Nice human moment there. Mm -hmm. Canyon grabs a mic. Canyon says the crowd clearly can't afford cable, so he'll tell them what he usually does. The crowd tries to drown him out by revving their motors. He says normally he asks a question to find out if the crowd's as dumb as they look, but he won't today because there's no way that they're as dumb as they look. Wait, so if they're not as dumb as they look, does that mean they're smart? Uh, yes. <laughs> Maybe? Canyon started strong, but like Jericho last year, he had a little bit of a lame finish, I think. Yeah. I guess engine revs kind of throw everybody off. Booker and Stevie come out to the Harlem Heat theme. Stevie is back in the traditional Harlem Heat duds, but Booker is still in his singles gear. 
in fairness, Stevie's alternate gear was NWO gear, so he needed more redemption than Booker did. Yeah, it would have been nice to see them wear matching gear as like a show. Hey, we're back together. Yeah, I, I would have liked it if they did that, but if you were only changing one of them, Stevie's was the one to change. Right, yeah. Tanae wonders if they'll stay together or return to singles wrestling after this. Heenan says, to be great in tag wrestling, you have to be a consistent team. And as long as the Heat have been apart, it may cause them trouble. The Heat chuck Canyon out and beat up Bigelow, who awkwardly keeps going past a Stevie clothesline, stumbles towards Stevie, pauses, then stumbles towards Booker and eats a Harlem sidekick. It's hard to even tell what the sequence was supposed to be there. Yeah, because he goes off the rope, but then goes to the corner and then comes out of the corner. Yeah, yeah. I was you confused you can see Stevie kind of like belatedly give him a push. Yeah. Like Bigelow expects me to whip him at Booker, but he clearly expected Bigelow to just go to Booker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so huge miscommunication there. Stevie even has to hop over Bigelow as Bigelow decides to roll out of the ring towards Stevie. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. To that. talk strategy with Canyon. Total mess <laughs> the opening moments there. Yeah. Tanae and Heenan have a great discussion about Booker and Stevie's singles careers, wondering if they might have tag rust. That sounds kind of painful. Mm, yeah. Stevie gets the crowd clapping for the heat. Canyon and Stevie start us off proper, and Canyon gets in a cheap shot on a test of strength, but Stevie fights back and ends up slamming Canyon and Bigelow, so they retreat outside again. Back in, Canyon spits at Booker and challenges him, so Stevie tags Booker, who beats the ever-loving crap out of Canyon. <laughs> Canyon stuns Booker with a back elbow and lands several strikes, but Booker gets two off a dropkick. Tags to Stevie and Bigelow, and Stevie encourages engine revving. What an amazing shift from 1996. Yeah, right? Bigelow and Stevie can't knock each other down at first. Stevie finally gets Bigelow with a clothesline, but Bigelow headbutts him, and Bigelow and Canyon double-team Stevie. Tanay calls a Canyon top-rope double-axe handle, evidence of him being the innovator of offense. I assure you, Tanay, I have seen that move many times. Mm -hmm. It is not innovative. Canyon tries to get engine revs, but earns only booze. <laughs> Canyon and Bigelow use Booker to distract Robinson so they can cheat. Heenan encourages that, and Tanay asks if it's, quote, all about deception and distraction. Heenan quips, it's like a marriage. <laughs> the triad keep wearing Stevie down, earning two off a Bigelow headbutt and a Canyon knee drop. But when Canyon holds Stevie for Bigelow to go up top, Stevie slingshots Canyon into Bigelow. Tag to Booker, who gets two off a spin kick, which Tony miscalls the Harlem sidekick. But when he goes for his axe kick, Bigelow pulls down the ropes and Booker spills outside. Tanay makes a great point that Booker has become used to using that move in singles matches, mm -hmm. where it's safe to telegraph it once he's stunned his opponent. But in this tag match, he forgot to watch for his opponent's partner. Yeah, absolutely. Bigelow smashes Booker's face to the steps and sends him back in. Canyon gets two with a top rope rocker dropper, but Booker powerbombs him on a second attempt. Tags to Bigelow and Stevie, and Bigelow goes for the eyes, but Stevie returns the favor and fights Bigelow and Canyon off. DDP charges to the apron, dressed almost exactly like Canyon, mm -hmm. but Stevie reverses a Bigelow whip, and Bigelow runs into Page. Stevie steps aside to let Booker missile dropkick the stunned Bigelow, earning Stevie the three count and the win, as Paige is moments too late for the save. Again, even if he'd saved successfully, wouldn't that be a DQ? 
at least in this case, they're the champion, so he wouldn't care. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. Stevie and Booker roll out to escape any retribution and celebrate with their new belts, hugging. Eight times, Booker yells, can you dig it? These two had indeed won the belt seven times prior, between 1994 and 1996. They will actually win twice more in 1999, giving them the most wins of this title for a single team at 10. Booker himself actually has 11 wins, the most of wins of this title by a single wrestler, as he wins once more with Test as his partner when the title is used in the WWE after the end of WCW. Yeah, I was thinking it's Booker and Team Test, isn't it? Yep, yep. Thoughts on it? That was a pretty decent match. It's one of those ones where when the action's going, I liked it. Obviously, as we discussed, there are some miscues. One but I thought especially funny is when Stevie Ray does the slingshot to knock Bigelow down in the corner, mm-hmm. Bigelow doesn't have a very good I, I'm looking somewhere else moment, yeah. but he can't see the counter. So he has to pretend like he's being yelled at by the crowd. Yes. Tanae at least helps sell that by actually making that point. Oh, he's being distracted by the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's also weird because he f- doesn't fall on the turnbuckle. He falls on the ropes, like he straddles him sideways. Yes, yeah. It's like it's not a bad way to do it, it's just not the way it normally is done. The problem I have with this match is they stall a lot. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, that is a heel thing, but again, the way those, that kind of thing works is if you have really good, fast-paced, interesting, dynamic teams, like on the face side especially, you can make up for the slow part, because they'll be slow. Right, right. Then when they come back, they're hitting drop kicks and this and that, like the Rock and Roll Express, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they're in control, it's fast-paced, energetic, exciting. And so it really makes the long, you know, one of them is always in peril spots worth it because you know what's going to happen once they go through. Right. Whereas with this, you know, once it gets out, it's going to be body slams and kicks. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, with Booker, it's better kicks, but still, you know what I mean? Not the same. Yeah, there's not like a lot of cool double team spots. There are some interesting things. I love um, Stevie just casually sidestepping so that Booker can missile dropkick at the end. Yeah. That was that was a nice touch. But yeah, I, I agree. I feel like this match feels a little bit slow at times. Mm-hmm. There's a few points where they'll roll out of the ring and have a fairly lengthy strategy discussion and stuff yeah. as well, which does not help the match very much. Yeah. The other thing I thought was, so what exactly was the plan at the end? So DDP gets on the ring apron, and he's going to, like, do a forearm strike? I think so. I think the idea is one of them is going to be whipped at him, and he'll hit him hard, and right. he'll go down. So, okay, so Stevie Ray is going to get thrown towards the ropes and get punched once by DDP and be knocked out forever? I mean, I guess he could technically, from that position, do a diamond cutter onto the ropes. I don't think that was his plan, though. It didn't happen, so we can claim it was whatever, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> I just, it's not like when you have, like, the belt, and you're holding the belt up. Right, yeah. I just don't know how we would have won a match. Or, you know, a briefcase. Sure. Yeah. As we might see later tonight. Maybe. When this exact spot gets repeated. No. <laughs> repeating spots in this show? Next you'll tell me that they constantly fight in this outside in the same part of the ring area. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you about the pacing problems. There's a number of points where they retreat outside, like I said, or just spend some time appealing to or yelling at the crowd or staring each other down. It actually made the match, I would imagine, fairly fun to watch in person as there's some good crowd interaction there, but it definitely slows the match down. There's some awkward points, especially that early miscommunication that drag it down a bit as well. That said, I really did like the storyline of this match, with that central question being whether the Heat could get back in the tag game 
or not after spending so much time as singles wrestlers. It was well highlighted by spots like Booker getting interrupted going for the axe kick, and the triad just showing superior teamwork overall. The commentary team really benefited that story as well, bringing it out throughout the match. Mm -hmm. So I think this has strong storytelling and good personalities. You cut a minute or two of stalling and retreats and clean up some of the sloppiness, and it'd be a solid tag team match. As it is, the potential was clear, but it wasn't quite reached. Mm -hmm. It was still good to see Harlem Heat having some fun being back together after what? a while apart. They seem to be enjoying themselves. Yeah, if you could take the better parts of this, like I said, the story that runs throughout it, and the better parts of the previous match, which is the more interesting moves in the ring, they'd have a really good match together somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Heat would hold the title for a whopping nine days. Oh. Yeah. I won't spoil how they lose it against yet, because that comes up later. Tony throws to a video package covering the feud between the West Texas Rednecks and the Revolution, apparently kicked off by Kurt Hennig, calling Saturn Uranus. Yep. (sighs) Trust Hennig to find the perfect joke, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Rednecks beat down Revolution Rescue, and here we are. I'll let Al cover any finer details in a moment. Our third match is the West Texas Rednecks. That's Kurt Hennig. Barry Windham and Bobby Duncan Jr. with Kendall Windham versus The Revolution, Perry Saturn, Shane Douglas, and Dean Malenko in a six-man tag match. Referee for this one is Billy Silverman. Three tag matches in a row. Clearly, I've been a bad person. <laughs> so as mentioned, Ric Flair's legacy in recent storylines bleeds in this one as well. So the Forcemen would break up for the very last time, sadly. Because they didn't be aligned with Heel Flair. Okay. At the same time, Benoit and Malenko were not getting treated well by back office, which they work into a story because, of course, they did. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, the story is that the two of them, along with Saturn and Shane Douglas, formed the revolution because they want to be outsiders that get respect. You know, they get the opportunities they've earned, you know, not the boys in the back holding them back and all that sort of fun kayfabe destroying thing if you love to hear in wrestling. <coughs> New blood. <clears throat> Yeah. Sorry, I had a cough there. Yes. <laughs> As for the West Texas Rednecks, they're also in kind of a weird spot because their whole gimmick was, hey, we're from Texas, even though one of you is from Minnesota. But, you know, Texas, Minnesota, same difference. You know, it's, I don't know, vaguely west of Texas, or actually, I'm not sure if it is. No. Nope. Probably not. north of Texas. <laughs> yeah, it's north of Texas, yeah. Yeah, you know, north is the new west. <laughs> sure. You know, there's that movie, North by Northwest. I'm pretty sure that means that North and West are the same thing. I'm sure that's what Hitchcock was going for there, yes. <laughs> yeah, so their gimmick was, we hate rap. So they were mad at Master P and the No Limit Soldiers, but that was their whole thing. And that's not a thing anymore because they lost the final match against that group. So at this point, they just hate other people, I guess. They don't like Perry Saturn, as mentioned, and they beat him up so that gets the group together. Incidentally, there are actual rappers on this show, the ICP. Yeah. No, no repercussions. You, you really would think, yeah, we should maybe consider like switching the feuds in this match. Yeah, in maybe. These matches, right? Yeah. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for this one, since we have two Wyndham's, I'm going to call Barry Wyndham Wyndham, and I'll call Kendall Wyndham Kendall, just yep. to be clear on that. The Rednecks enter to their hit song, Rap is Crap. Kendall has a bull rope with a cowbell. Hedeg does a little dance as they come down the entrance ramp, and much of the group sings along with the song's chorus. 
I don't remember which show it is that has the music video, but the joy the group clearly takes in getting to be in a music video at all is just infectious. Oh, it is, yeah. That that, that is the best part of that angle by far. Rap is Crap is a flat-out stupid song, but they have so much fun with it that it becomes kind of awesome. Yeah. Is that in the Mayhem CD, by the way? I believe it is, but I can't recall for sure. Tanae briefly thinks that they're actually coming out to their second single, Good Old Boys, which is slightly less silly, but still pretty silly. Tony jabs him for it as the Revolution make their entrance, asking what their song is called, and Tanae says he's not going to check his format sheet and he'll just listen. Heenan says he doesn't have a format sheet, he just has a napkin. (laughs) Tony mentions that the Revolution seems to have one fan in Dusty Roads. Saturn grabs a mic. Saturn says they aren't WCW's mystery men, they don't care about the Rednecks or Chad Brock. They're trying to set things straight, and if they have to start with the Rednecks, fine. I'm not sure why a pre-match promo was necessary, but it was okay. Chad Brock, referenced by Saturn and by the commentators slightly prior to that, is a country music singer who had recently released his first album and came into work and angle with Hennig. Interestingly, he'd actually also worked for WCW from 1994 through 1996 prior to this. Correct. So they're actually cross-promoting a country performer here, but one who actually was a wrestler, Mm -hmm. which makes it slightly weird that he's not in the pay-per-view match. Yeah. The Revolution win an opening brawl. Barry Windham and Malenko start the match proper. Windham gets a cheap shot on a test of strength, but Malenko knocks him around the ring with multiple strikes, then trades off to Saturn and Douglas in turn to wear Windham down. Douglas makes the mistake of following Windham to the redneck corner and gets triple teamed, as Silverman is busy stopping Malenko and Saturn from entering. Saturn does make it in to grab Duncan, but then just kind of leaves. Weird bit. Yeah. Duncan takes over on Douglas, but gets caught with a power slam, and Douglas goes to tag Malenko, who backs away a little, so Douglas tags Saturn instead. I don't think that was intended to be team tension. I think Douglas had just forgotten who was supposed to go next. Yeah, I believe it's the case. Saturn largely dominates with nice kicks and suplexes, until Kendall sneaks in a bull rope shot from outside. Heenan calls Malenko Malino, and jokes that that's an Italian team. <laughs> The Rednecks trade in and out, faking tags and engineering ref distractions, and Kendall beats Saturn up with his bill rope outside, then rolls him in for two for Duncan. Saturn German suplex gives him room to tag Malenko, who drop kicks Duncan. Tony miscalls that as a suplex and corrects himself, but Malenko immediately suplexes Duncan for one, and Tony thanks him. <laughs> tag to Douglas, and Malenko drop toe holds Duncan for a Douglas elbow drop for one. But Hennig slugs Douglas as he tries the Pittsburgh plunge, and now it's Douglas's turn to get beaten with a bull rope. Douglas crotches Hennig on the ring post, but Hennig flare karmas him on the top rope move. Ironic, yeah. given how much Douglas hates flare. That's true. The Rednecks switch around without tags and earn two counts with a Wyndham back suplex, Wyndham clothesline, Duncan shoulder breaker, Duncan vertical suplex with float over, and Wyndham DDT. At one point, Wyndham goes to tag Hennig, but ends up tagging Duncan while he's fighting Douglas, who flubbed similarly earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Douglas gets a boot up on a Duncan charge and tags Saturn, who destroys Duncan with a clothesline. Catch Duncan's head, it's in Rapid City somewhere, Tony jokes. Yes. But gets hit from behind by Wyndham. Everyone into brawl, and Malenko gets the cloverleaf on Hennig, but Kendall hits Malenko with the bull rope. 
Douglas disposes of both Wyndham's to save Malenko. Duncan charges, but Saturn catches his leg and lifts him. Duncan nearly topples, so Saturn wisely sets him back down, gets his grip right, and picks him back up for the Death Valley driver for the three count and the win, as Wyndham is a second too late to save. At least this save would have been legal, so it's not quite the same finish as the prior two matches. Yes. Saturn and Douglas roll out to celebrate, not noticing at first that the Rednecks have grabbed Malenko. The Rednecks beat Malenko up in the corner, but Saturn and Douglas charge in to save him. Malenko angrily hurls the bull rope after the retreating rednecks. Saturn has captured one of the cowboy hats and puts it on, but takes it back off. Malenko drops it on the ground. Saturn picks it back up, just to make sure the rednecks see, drops it, and stomps on it. The replay unfortunately shows the slightly flubbed pickup for the finish again. Yeah. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was, it was a pretty chaotic match, but I thought it was pretty fun. This one... I think had the energy a bit better as a whole than the opening six-man match. For one thing, you have a lot more experienced people in here with Barry Windham and Kurt Hennig. Yeah. Well, even if he can't do what he used to do, his timing isn't as good, you know, his speed's not as good. It's things that happen because he just wore his body down so much over the years. Yeah, it's not quite a fair comparison. Kurt Hennig and Barry Windham versus the Insane Clown Posse, I think. Right, We, yeah. we know which one's likely to do better in a match. Absolutely. But even still, I mean... Duncan Jr. is really good here as doing mm-hmm. his part. Yeah, yeah, I think he does a nice job overall. There's nothing, not make a pun, revolutionary about what he does, but he does all his basic wrestling and his timing is really nice. Is it just me, by the way, or did he remind you of a shorter, thinner, blonde-haired giant? I he has a very that, yeah. similar facial look. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other thing I thought is that the face team is a lot more diverse in offense than mm-hmm. you had. So you get a good mix of suplexes and top rope stuff and brawling. So this is kind of what you want a six match. You don't want three people all doing the exact same thing on each side. Right. Because it's very repetitive. Even though they botched the timing a bit, I thought the ending was a strong one. The idea anyways. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah the idea that yeah, they yeah. get them all in the ring and grab the lead guy and take him down was really nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought this had fast action with a good bit of variety to it, and some very nice double-team spots by both teams. Some great Saturn suplexes, and really good heelish cheating by the Rednecks. It did feel, again, like the face and peril bits were a little bit long and overabundant, but they were done well. Kendall and Hennig, in particular, were good at finding little spots to sneak in hits, with Hennig always ready to lunge in if he saw an opening. Mm -hmm. Duncan was a little bit awkward at points with some strange pauses or minor slip-ups, but nothing that really took away from the match too much, and I think overall he has a strong performance, like you said. Yeah, he's he's not a newcomer, but he doesn't have the years of experience, almost decades Yeah, experience those guys have. Malenko kind of felt underused in this one, not really getting much in the way of highlight spots. Yeah, true. And the Revolution didn't quite seem on the same page about some parts of the match, though overall they worked well together. This, I would say, was definitely the best of the three tag matches that we've had. I think as a whole, yeah. I agree. Just a lot smoother, I think, yeah. overall, um, and had a bit more of a flow to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah, it's interesting because you have the West Texas Rednecks, who, despite not having a really a point to exist at this point, are very unified. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the Revolution, which is just three, obviously the fourth guy we don't see out here, three guys that also wrestle that are kind of similar, but not really. Yeah, yeah. I guess they should, you know, start wearing matching shirts with a logo on it or something so I could know they're together. (laughs) 
Otherwise, it feels like just three to four guys that just all come up for a match. Yeah, yeah, they they don't quite feel fully unified as a team yet, which from the sound of things, they probably recently started, so it right. makes sense, but they don't quite feel as unified. And you can tell that at a few points in the match, but it's not a major deal on on the match. Yeah, there is history, by the way, with these guys, because I think it's the original version of the triple threat is Shane Douglas... I think it's Benoit and Malenko with them. Yeah, Shane Douglas, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, yeah. And then Saturn is also in ECW. Yes. Uh, at the time that that is going on, but not aligned with them at the time. Yeah, him, it was him and Cronus, yeah. As mentioned, the team that would win the tag titles nine days out from the show from the Harlem Heat is, in fact, the West Texas Rednecks. Okay. Represented by Barry and Kendall Wyndham. Okay, yeah, fair enough. They would, of course, be challenged on Fall Brawl by the champions they just beat. Okay. It's a natural thing. Fortunately, I have to be the one that says bad news in the show, which is usually your job. Uh, this is the last major appearance that Bobby Duckham Jr. really made in wrestling, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right up on that, too, unfortunately. So he has one more, I believe, pre-taped six-man match on Saturday night, because they always taped that way in advance, because it didn't matter. Yeah. And he has one more Thunder appearance. At that point, he stops being involved in the group. Obviously, that's noted. The group become tag champions after this, so they're not broken up at this match, but he's not really involved anymore. Mm-hmm. So he disappears from TV, and unfortunately, he died an overdose in January 2000. Oh, that's a shame. He, he, he really did seem like he had some, some strong potential, honestly. And it's a shame, I mean, it's a shame, one, to hear that he you know, ended up falling off the radar after that, and also definitely a shame of... Of him, him passing. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been very interesting to see where he could have gone from here. Oh, absolutely. Had, had yeah. Been able to stay around. It definitely has good potential. There's a, there's a good base to make a, make a wrestler and see where he can go with that. Yeah. 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 In less depressing news, the revolution would face the first family by Jimmy Hart at Fall Brawl. Okay. Our fourth match is Ernest the Cat Miller with Sonny Ono versus Buff Bagwell. The referee for this one is Scott Dickinson. Face Buff Bagwell. Not a thing that exists. That's what they're selling us on. (laughs) Yeah, this whole story they started in 99 after... So he's a heel betrayed by another heel because he did, as we've talked about many times in the show before, he didn't cheat properly. (laughs) Yes. So he's now a face because he fights the guy he was helping incorrectly to fight earlier (laughs) sure why not i think with him obviously we find him very punchable as a heel which like a lot of people did but those is that period where people were really liking heels in wrestling yeah to be fair he has a certain energy that if you're sort of uh, aligned that way i could see you going "Ooh, this guy's interesting i should like him he absolutely has charisma yes like no question he has charisma he has energy i will absolutely agree on that it's just that the man has such a wonderfully punchable face. Yeah. That you just you want to see people punch him. And that's a myth. Yeah. That's not that's not a face. Like you, the face is the guy that you want to see doing the punching. Exactly. The heel is the guy you want to see punched. Like yeah. Some people just have a natural al- alignment that way to yeah. you wanting to see them punched. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and the other aspect that's ridiculous is that they're presenting him as this this you know young guy who just needed to get a shot. Uh, you've been in the company since 1991. Yes, yeah, he has been here. We we saw him, I believe, for the first time during our Starcade run at the first Battle Bowl show, which would have been Starcade 91. Yeah. Yes. So again, his name comes up. 
the face turn involved him fighting Ric Flair and Roddy Piper uh, when they were controlling him things and being heels. So here's where it gets a little awkward. So, uh, how do I say this? Wrestling loves to do a thing where when you have a heel, you have the face come out and make fun of him. Yes. And you impersonate him. They did that with Buff Bagwell, where he comes out dressed like Ernest Miller and also um, painted up in the face like Ernest Miller. Yes. Ernest Miller is black. Correct. So, yes, Buff Bagwell would be doing blackface, which is not advisable. Yes. In August of 1999, by the way. Yeah. And this segment is cut from Peacock. I did check. Okay. I know what I looked up what show it happened on. I'm like, scroll through, scroll through. Not here. <laughs> and this show was about five minutes shorter than the last one, so I kind of figured that out. <laughs> also worth noting, they have someone impersonating Sonny Ono, but they have him wearing a weird, like, Halloween mask of him. Okay. So it, it could have been worse. Yeah. my point. They didn't double down on the worst thing you could do. <laughs> at Jeez. least. But yeah, so at any rate, the, the guy who was to cheer here is the guy who just did blackface. Yeah, yeah. Not, not great. Cat's crappy MIDI music brings him out, accompanied by Sonny Ono, who wears kind of a strange biker hat that looks too small. Cat yells at crowd members on the way. He has also made the very odd decision to wear Confederate flag gloves. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. He calls for his music to be cut. The bikers rev their motors, and he insists that they stop, which, of course, does not work at all. Heenan jokes that we'll be here watching this until May of 2008. Mm-hmm. Please no. Yes. Cat never gets to cut a promo, and eventually Buff Bagwell enters to his song Buff Daddy. It comes out sans ridiculous hat, missing the opportunity to have a biker version of it. Oh, I mean, the best part of Buff Bagwell is his hat. I don't like Buff Bagwell, so that's the best part is the hat he wears. I- I'm not sure that even in that case that I would agree that that hat is good. <laughs> it's a relative compliment. Bagwell gets a mic, but Cat steals it. Man, I thought we were going to escape pre-match promos this time. Cat tries to talk, but gets drowned out by the engines again. Bagwell has a laugh and gets the mic, but Cat steals it again and gets drowned out again. Cat goes to yell at the crowd, but Doug Dellinger tells him to get back in the ring. Heenan calls Dellinger tougher than anyone and says he sets the law. Only if he has a can of mace. Yes. Bagwell finally gets the mic and tells Cat he's not Sturgis's favorite and he should kiss their ass then gets the engines revving again. Cat holds up his Confederate flag gloves as Heenan, I think genuinely not having noticed yet, asks what kind of paws he has on. Tony, who obviously did notice, just ignores the question. That's a good idea. I think what Cat is trying to do here is get the bikers on his side with those gloves, maybe, as we've seen some Mm -hmm. of them in previous shows have had Confederate flags actually out there. So he, he kind of like seems to point at them pleadingly as they're revving their engines at him. So I don't think he's meaning to express that he legitimately agrees with the Confederacy, but still is portraying the fans as possibly yeah. agreeing with the Confederacy, which isn't great. Right. And if anyone in this scenario would be pro-Confederacy, I would think he would be the last person. Yes, yeah. Admittedly, like I said, we did see that some fans clearly did rather favor the Confederacy in earlier shows of this series. But admittedly as well, this time, they just ignore him here and keep riffing at him, so maybe that's a positive sign? Yeah. I don't know. Let's move on. Please. (laughs) Ono yells at the crowd as he can't hear during a strategy discussion. Tony brings up the 1996 motorcycle match, and Heenan jokes that Medusa took the training wheels off of Ono's bike and left. (laughs) 
cat hip tosses Bagwell and pretends to ride a motorcycle, and Bagwell can't quite hide a smile at that. Bagwell reverses a second attempt and lands strikes and slams, then does his own motorcycle pose while Cat yells at the crowd. Eventually, he just kind of accepts the crowd's chance against him. Cat lands kicks, clubbing blows, and chokes, and gets two when Ono sneaks in some choking too. He cuts off one Bagwell comeback with a punch to the balls, but Bagwell blocks the suplex and hits his own. Both are down for five. Bagwell crossbody gets two. Either Cat went down early or Bagwell jumped too high on that because he hits way high on him. It's a good crossbody jump, I think. Yeah, yeah. It actually looks good until it's supposed to make contact, at which point it like grazes the top of Cat's head. Practically, yeah, for sure. Cat jawbreakers Bagwell and Ono holds his briefcase for Cat, but Bagwell reverses a whip and sends Cat into the briefcase for the three count and the win. Ono was a second too late to... Nah, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The streak is over. (laughs) Cat kicks and stomps Bagwell, then chokes and punches him. Saw enough of that in the match, dude. Ono comes in and does Bagwell's dance, then poses with one foot on him, even doing a Hogan muscle pose. Okay, that was a little funny. They land a few more blows and make their exit. Thoughts on this? So, when there's an actual match, I think it's not bad. Obviously, it's not great, but like the drop kicks are fine. You know, the execution for the most part and everything is fine. It's not again nothing revolutionary or mind blowing. It's a good, decent match that I wouldn't mind watching on TV. The problem is there is so much stalling and stopping and nonsense. This really feels like the worst version of a house show match. Mm-hmm. If this match was one of those ones where, like, in 96, where they taped, like, seven matches before Road Wild, I would be fine with that, because you don't care where the pacing is, but for WCW Saturday night. Right. But people are paying 50 bucks, or possibly more at this point, to watch this as part of the show. Unless they're in person, in which case they paid nothing. Correct. <laughs> or across the street and did pay nothing. Yes. But yeah, it's one of those things, it's not like that Mongo match we had, where even base stuff was being botched. The actual moves they do were fine for the most part. They were, though I will say, like, what Cat actually does is a couple basic kicks, some basic punches, and a lot of choking. Yeah, so okay. it's like, how could you screw that up? His hip toss was pretty good, to be fair. That's yeah, a 50-50 fair. move. It's not like, oh, him. But yeah, just being, he doesn't, he's not tripping on his own feet or anything. It's not like when his matches were, when the action's going, it's bad. It's just everything else is not good. Yeah. I will say what's not great is the finish. That back roll-up does not look great. No, no, that looks pretty poor. Aside from that, the idea is that Buff Bagwell is the strong face here, right? And he's got to win by rolling guy up after his manager hits him? Yes. He doesn't, you know, like, say, push him off, hits the briefcase, and do a blockbuster and pin him? Yeah, yeah, use that as a stun and get the Buff blockbuster or something like that. Yeah. 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 It's a surprisingly heelish way for Buff Bagwell, the face to win the match. Yeah, admittedly, to be clear, he is countering Cat and Ono's right. attempt to cheat, so it's not like he set up that entire situation. No, but, no, sure, but yeah. But yeah, it, it feels a little bit weaker for the finish than you expect, plus it had already been done on the show once. Right, right. In match two. Yes. Well, clearly they weren't watching as Ono tries to talk over the crowd, which Canyon tried. In- yes, yeah, there's a lot of repetition on the show, as we noted, the first three tag matches all end with somebody nearly making the save, like, lunging him from outside to nearly make the save Mm -hmm. in, like, almost the exact same spot over and over. Yep. This was barely a match. Yeah. And it took far, far too long for its content. 
about half the length of the prior match, but about one-tenth of the moves. Cat and Bagwell both have charisma, but neither did much of interest here. It's like they both came with ideas for character moments, but forgot that they were doing an actual match rather than a promo segment. Mm. Like I said, Cat didn't even do much in the way of karate moves other than like two kicks. Then it's just basic clubbing and choking. Mm. So this was really, really dull, despite being quite short. Yeah, I mean, his kicks are fine. That's the best thing I can really say about it. The one sidekick he does, I really liked. Yeah, the one on the corner, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it was just like, you're a karate guy. Why are you not doing more karate stuff? It's like your entire gimmick is karate guy. Yeah, we we could just swap you out for Glacier, right? Yeah, Glacier would do better in this match, I think. Yeah. I always feel like, I mean, there's been some matches with, with the cat where I've actually liked him. Yeah. And it just feels like he never quite gets the melding of the styles that it seems like he needs to get. Yeah. Where you actually integrate the karate into your wrestling more. Mm-hmm. He just does it for like one or two big kicks, not for his overall style, which is a real right. shame. Absolutely, yeah. At Fall Brawl, Buff Bag will be booked for a match against Berlin, which is Alex Wright rebranded as the evil German heel. Okay. But he would decide he won a job to Berlin, so they would write in a story that he was he he just got in too late. His flight just arrived after the match. Wow. He would then job to Berlin on Nitro, which I guess thought was better than jobbing to him on pay-per-view. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, it's better to do it in, on the show with the bigger audience. Correct. <laughs> Not the brightest man, Buff Bagwell. Yeah. As for Ernest Miller, this is sadly the end of his pairing with Sonny Ono. I know you'll miss all their hijinks in the future, Bob. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm torn on that because I think Sonny Ono can be a fun character. Mm-hmm. I liked when he played with the idea that he's not muscly at all doing the muscle poses yeah, at sure. the end of this match and stuff. And even though people never really sell his kicks like they should, right. he has some really impressive kicks. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see him being a, a good, solid manager character if used appropriately. It's just they don't often use him appropriately. For me, he starts out good enough in you know ninety five when he's managing you know everyone, the, everybody, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that show. Uh, just the generic evil heel that you know wants to somehow take over WCW by winning a series of seven matches. I don't yeah. know how that's going to work exactly. By this point, so we're four years out of this. He has to get sillier and sillier as time goes on. Yeah. So he goes from wearing his you know evil in his suit, holding you know, championship belt for Ultimo Dragon. To wearing like a vest and a weird like biker cap and admittedly they're doing a comedy bit for this show right but still yeah know. your they, point's they, taken yeah that they keep trying to up the ante with silliness for him rather than leaning into the other parts of the character that he had yeah yeah he he becomes a cartoon character by the end yeah yeah not not in a good way Tony throws to a video of the Page Benoit feud featuring Page telling Benoit that he doesn't have it. Benoit telling Paige that he does have it, and Paige telling Yo Mama jokes with Bigelow. No, really. Yes. You're, you're 43 here, Paige. That's at least 30 years too old for that. <laughs> Our fifth match is Diamond Dallas Page versus Chris Benoit in a no-disqualification match for Benoit's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Charles Robinson. All right, so I think I, this is the last time he's going to come up. I, I'm pretty sure. In the time since this last match, Ric Flair again was president. He was evil and everything. He would strip Scott Steiner of the U.S. title and give it 
to the more deserving wrestler in his mind, his son, David. David Flair, U.S. champion. Yep. Oi. Yeah. Conan, you know, Benoit, all these people, U.S. champion. But no, David Flair. To be fair, they didn't act like he'd earned it. That was part of the whole point. But still. Right. It's not sold as he won this title. It's sold. He's he's literally handed it by his father. Correct. Yeah. So what happened was Flair would be out of power at this point. And they formed a new championship committee, which is Dusty Rhodes as the head of it, which they mentioned earlier with the, the revolution there. Yeah. He would actually grant the U.S. title shot to Benoit on a kind of beating up David Flair in the backstage area. Just, that, that seems fair. Beat a guy up and get a title shot against him. I mean, that appears to be WSW method number one as we go forward, isn't it? Like, yeah, spring stampede, you even earn your way into a tournament by beating up the guy who was actually in the tournament. Yeah. And then or, or did getting kicked back mark? out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still not clear on that one, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Incidentally, this would happen five days before the show, so they didn't have a lot of time to really enjoy the idea of Benoit as U.S. champion. It's kind of weird that it's like a last-minute thing that he wins the title. Okay. The buildup, as mentioned in that bit you mentioned said earlier, is that yeah, DDP started making your mama jokes and talking a lot about Chris Benoit's mother, which is odd, to yeah. say the least. Admittedly, DDP is a former U.S. champion, so you could easily do the "I'm a better champion than you can ever be." I'll bring real honor to this title, et cetera, right? Et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Or I guess do stupid jokes. <laughs> During Paige's entrance, his pyro does not quite go off at the right time. It's a little bit behind him, where normally it hits just as he breaks the diamond cutter gesture. He gets a mic, because everybody has to cut a promo before their match tonight. You'll never forget him, because he's great and a two-time, two-time, two-time heavyweight champ. And tonight, he'll be a three-time U.S. champ. He apologizes for joking about Benoit's mother. He knows Benoit loves his mother, but so can anyone else for $2.99 a minute. Now get that belt shined and bring it out. I do like a non-apology apology by a heel, mm-hmm. but the pre-match promos are not doing it for me tonight. No. They just seem crammed in. Also, why does DDP say two time, three times, and three time once? Huh. Things like that keep me up at night, man. Right, right. <laughs> I-, I could see it with the US champion thing. He like predictive, like I'm gonna, you know, he's saying a two time, but he means three. But he's actually saying two time for the heavyweight champion. But that'd be the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's not doing it for the U.S. title. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre. It is. Yes. The good thing in this promo though is when he's uh doing the line about two ninety nine, Charles Robinson, you can see in the background, just gets this shocked and horrified look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me out of this. Yep. And Robinson, obviously, was uh, a big part of the flair angle as well. Correct. I think I neglected to mention that in the earlier match he ref that the announcers have a bit of a discussion of, oh, Charles Robinson is a referee. Do we need to watch out for anything? Correct. But uh, either Tony or Tanay, I forget which one, notes that with flair out of power, he's going to be on his best behavior to keep his job, which indeed he pretty much turns out to be. Yeah, correct. Benoit enters to his crappy non-horseman theme. Tony says there's never been a more deserving United States champion Largely because David Flair doesn't have the belt anymore. Is that kind of a backhanded compliment, I guess? Sort of, yeah. Or a secondhand compliment, I guess. <laughs> Tony also claims DDP is coming back to the scene of one of his greatest matches, referring to the Leno match. Not how I would characterize that. Yeah, I mean, if he's coming to the scene of where he won the world title first time, maybe. That, that would be a different matter, yeah. Yeah. 
Tanae mentions that Paige starred in a movie recently, First Daughter. That film, not to be confused with the 2004 film of the same name and a very similar plot, yes. was the first in a trilogy about Secret Service agent Alex McGregor. Paige looks to have been one of the villains. Yes. Paige gets in Benoit's face, so Benoit punts him in the balls. Great bug-eyed sell by Paige there. Mm-hmm. Benoit drives Paige out of the ring with strikes and dives off the platform at him, but Paige catches him and smashes him into the barricades and the platform. Back in, Paige earns two counts with a belly-to-belly suplex and by hurling Benoit to the mat off a standing fireman's carry. Great grin there by Paige. Mm -hmm. Benoit vaults over a knee strike and rolls him up for two, but Paige flips him over for two. Anderson-style spinebuster earns Paige multiple two counts. I appreciated seeing that. Oh, yeah. Benoit flips Paige over for two, and Paige clotheslines him for two. Paige complains about Robinson's count and makes him demonstrate his pace to check it. (laughs) (laughs) Benoit struggles to stand. Paige sidewalk slam for two. Benoit flips over a second one for a backslide, but Paige resists, so Benoit smoothly slips around to jawbreaker him. Benoit up top but Paige hangs him from the ropes by his feet and beats him up. Robinson tries to break it up, so Paige slaps him, takes his belt, and whips Benoit with that. Excellent crazy eyes there by Paige. Mm -hmm. Heenan tells Tony to get in the ring because he needs some whipping too. Robinson frees Benoit's legs while Paige is taunting the crowd, but Paige earns two off of some belt choking and even hangs Benoit by the belt from his shoulder. Benoit flips over, gets the belt off, and whips Paige with it. Benoit catches a Page kick, and German suplexes Page for two before he can try his usual spinning lariat, then keeps hold for two more German suplexes and two more two counts. Wonderful use of his usual rolling German suplexes there. Agreed, yeah. Canyon appears and shoves Benoit off the top into a Page rock bottom for two. Benoit reverses a whip to send Page into Canyon. There's that spot again. Yep. Benoit roll up for two, at least it's not the ending. Mm Mm-hmm. Page clothesline for two, and Bigelow appears to shoddily splash Benoit for two for Page. He clearly like lands on one foot, then falls over onto Benoit yeah. instead of actually splashing him. <laughs> he definitely rushes that spot, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. Looked like he was maybe losing his balance on the top, so it was just like, I just gotta go. Yeah, it could be. The Revolution watched the match on TV instead of, you know, helping. Yep. Canyon holds Benoit, and Page whips Bigelow at him, but Benoit dodges, and Bigelow hits Canyon. Bounces back into Paige, then dazedly falls headfirst to Paige's crotch in Sting's favorite 1990s spot. Mm-hmm. Benoit headbutts Bigelow in the balls, then goes up top for the swan dive headbutt to Paige for the three count and the win. The commentators build up Benoit's tenacity, noting that he beat not just Paige there, but the entire triad by himself. The other members of the revolution come out and hug Benoit. Little late, guys. Yeah. Could have used your help a minute or two ago. Right. Saturn says, it looks like Benoit does have it. And Douglas says, you can't stop the revolution. Benoit tells Paige, Paige is the disease and Benoit is the cure. I think he stole that from Batman. <laughs> Probably. Thoughts on this one? It's a, it's a really strong match. I mean, to be fair, that's what you, ex- you would expect at the very least with these guys. Yeah, yeah. As we know, Paige is very meticulous and his execution his moves is really nice. And he seems to be taking just a sheer joy in playing a heel in this match, too. Yeah. That's something I really liked in this match, is that Paige is a heel, but he's not the usual 
cowardly heel. He's definitely a jerk heel, but he's not playing the Hollywood Hogan heel where second he gets a trouble, he's got to bail the ring or, you know, every hole takes him down and he's about to die any second from that. No, yeah, he's a super confident and cruel heel. Yeah. Taking pleasure in him. It's, it is, it's the Vader. It's yeah, the Vader yeah. Type it very much played by that, Page, yeah. which, as we stated last year, was kind of the heel they should have gone for with Hogan and like Scott Steiner. Yes. But Page gets it. He's like, I don't want to just do the same heel as everybody else. Exactly. Yeah, he definitely seems to enjoy being a heel. If I were to take the match, there's definitely a few things I could still say. Like as many good spots as are like doing the pins off of each German suplex rather than just the drops. Mm-hmm. There's weird stuff like, okay, so Benoit goes to the corner, like he's gonna do a what, a moonsault? And it gets countered. <laughs> it's a little strange, right? Yeah. I get the idea, you need him in the corner to the whipping spot. But that would be much more logical if it was like Paige does a suplex, sets him on there. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what Benoit was gonna do exactly. Yeah. From that position. Yeah. Yeah, Tex Pula don't do a top rope move, climb the top rope, and, you know, again, the flare karma spot. A little bit, yeah. The less said about the awkwardness of watching a spot with choking and Benoit, the better. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, this is many years before. Yes. That, but uh, yeah. Off a good decade for that, but and you can't not think about that. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, it's a fairly brief section. That spot where Paige has him on his shoulder and. Page pretty much just has to go on faith at that point that Benoit is going to get his hands inside. The which he does. Time, which he does. Yeah, he yeah. does. But I was kind of shocked by that one because it's like, you can't really see what he's doing up there to know that he's all right before you start pulling. Right, right. The other thing I would say is, I don't know, it could be positive of anything in a match, depending on your point of view, but they kind of super seen a Benoit here. Is that, or is that just me? I mean, he, I mean, he takes what should be a heel finish... Like a heel cheap finish and kicks out, then kicks out of the splash, and then beats all three of them up. Yeah, I think I, you know, as I said during the match, I think I would have liked it better if the Revolution also got involved. Yeah, for probably that reason, I think. Yeah, I think Benoit feels a little bit strong at the end of it, maybe. Yeah, because I mean, like I said, he's pushed off the top rope into the slam, which would be a good heel finish. Mm-hmm. Kicks out of that, immediately gets splashed, and kicks out of that, and then fights. The, the only thing I, I would say I think is keeping me from thinking it's a full, like, superhuman performance from him, he never actually gets to kick out of Paige's finisher. He doesn't get to kick out of the diamond cutter. Right, right. That's a difference from, like, the Hulk Hogan or John Cena kind of template that they use for a while. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually take a finishing move. He takes yeah. what could be cheap heel finishes, but he never actually genuinely takes the finishing move. Yeah, can you imagine if they ended a match on this show with someone doing that, where they take the finish and pop right back up? <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. that would be terrible. But as you pointed out, too, the Revolution are just in the back watching. <laughs> just like, they're pulling the most extreme version of the Rock of yeah, Rock. They yeah. couldn't help if they wanted to. You know, for all these times where we have pre-match promos, maybe have one in the back where Benoit says, Mer, what happened? Stay there, I got this. Right, yeah. Because as it looks, they look like they're jerks. If you had sold it at any point that Benoit has actually told them to stay out of this, yes, explicitly because, as they said in the promo, DDP has told him, you don't have it, and he wants to prove, yes, I do. Mm. No matter what, he wants to do it on his own. I would be yeah. totally cool with that. But the way it plays out, his friends just watch in the back and hope for the best. Like it's yeah, and no thing. one has said to this point, yeah. stay out of it. Exactly. They just look like heartless jerks, not... Yeah. It looks like they're testing Benoit. It looks like they're testing him to see if he has it. 
Yeah. So it looks like they're arrogant jerks that think they're better than Benoit, not his friends that are hoping for the best for him. Admittedly, default Shane Douglas is an arrogant jerk, but in this case, he's not supposed to beat one. Right, yeah. And, and I think Perry Saturn and Dean Malenko always kind of seemed like nice guys to the extent that Dean Malenko had a personality. Right. <laughs> I guess it took Dean a little bit too long to learn uh, Empathy Program version 1.0. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little torn on this one on, on some points. On the one hand, it's quite one-sided, with Paige dominating for most of this match. On the other, Paige's offense and character work during the extended beatdown are excellent, with some really, really vicious power moves and wonderful, smug, cocky expressions. Benoit also gets in some really cool counters, Mm -hmm. and his eventual comeback does feel great, so the long beatdown totally works. And despite getting beaten down severely, Benoit does get to look super strong, as you pointed out, Mm -hmm. by winning against the entire triad by himself. But as we noted, why doesn't the revolution get involved? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I do get them not being first to interfere. They're the faces. But once the heels are repeatedly double and triple teaming Benoit, maybe think about helping your buddy. Yeah, maybe. So this ended up good, but it's just maybe one extra binder editing session from being absolutely amazing. Mm. Still... This was definitely what I needed at this point in the show. Yeah. After three tag matches in a row, which even when they're good, I don't like that many of those in a row. And then the absolute dreck that was Bagwell versus Cat. Yeah, this show definitely could use the reformatting severely. Yes. Place of the tag matches at different points in the show. I don't know which would you move around necessarily, but definitely move one of them later so you'd have three tag matches, yeah. let alone two three-man yeah, yeah. tag matches. Yeah, I mean, that that's the thing, is like, you have three in a row, two of them being six-man tags, yeah. and then multiple instances of almost exactly the same finish. Who put this together like yeah. this? Is it like the guys in the opening matches had to leave early, so they put all the matches on first yeah. so they could leave? Did none of you speak to each other about what each other was going to do in your matches at all? We would think they would have, yeah. Benoit will be challenged for his U.S. title by Sid Vicious at Fobrol. DP will be busy fighting Goldberg. We cut to the commentary desk, where Tony builds up the main event some more. Tanae notes there's only room in WCW for one of Nash or Hogan. Heenan says they didn't even get along in the NWO. Tony says fans and WCW are ecstatic to see Hogan back in the red and yellow and mending his ways. Tony says it's time to give away a motorcycle. Tanay is upset that he's not eligible. Did I win it? He didn't ask, clearly having missed the bit about eligibility moments before. <laughs> Tony asks if Heenan has ever been on a motorcycle in his life. Heenan says yes, but the two extra side wheels fell off and it was a horrible accident. <laughs> Tony just sits there trying not to laugh as Heenan starts a tale about going through the park and almost hitting a squirrel but finally interrupts to throw to the giveaway. <laughs> WCW.com's Chad Dimiani makes sure to get his name in, calling American Iron Horse the proud sponsors of Road Wild 1999. Yes, very proud, I'm sure. They're the only sponsors, by the way. He shows the customized Road Wild American Iron Horse cycle, which is basically a normal one with the crappy... 1999 to 2000 WSW logo and a Road Wild logo that looks nothing like the actual Road Wild logo. Yes. Great job, guys. The actual show logo, I forgot to mention earlier, incorporates the horrible 1999 WSW logo too, 
and it gets so close to actually doing it well, but just doesn't quite have it vertically centered on the side flames properly. So it looks just awkward and misaligned. Yeah, yeah. That logo is hard to work into anything anyway. Oh, but, yeah. But it's just why they get like inches off from actually having a kind of cool look with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chad introduces the American Iron Horse ladies. One of them rotates the rolling container to mix up the envelopes. I think that may in fact be the same container that they used for the names at Starcade 1991, the first Battle Bowl show. It looks like it looks really similar. Yeah. Chad can't get the door open, so the lady helps undo the lock. Chad blames a trick lock. The lady draws a name. Chad introduces Tim Edmondson, the American Iron Horse president. Tim gives us the winner, Darnell Potter of Cleveland, Ohio. Hinnick gets oddly amused by that name. (laughs) He just starts laughing Uh and continues laughing for like the rest of the segment. Tim says, Darnell, if you're watching, you've got to find one. Honestly, if I were him, I doubt Darnell would still be watching this show, too. Yeah. Tony throws to a video package for Sting versus Sid Vicious, showing Sid teaming up with Rick Steiner to hit Sting and Goldberg with various objects. Sid claims that he is the Millennium Man. Our sixth match is the Millennium Man, Sid Vicious versus Sting. Referee for this one is Johnny Boone. So this is a very rare point in WCW history in which there is no NWO. Don't worry, there'll be one in a few months. Yeah. As such, there's a little bit of a power vacuum here. So we have the trio of Sid Vicious, Kevin Nash, and Rick Steiner. Uh, Sid is a very recent return coming off of actually not wrestling anywhere. After he left WWF, he just stopped wrestling for about a year. Was meant to come back by Kevin Nash, probably saying, hey, look how much money I got paid this year. You should do that too. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest, softball doesn't pay that well anymore. (laughs) Now, apparently the Millennium Man, he also claims to have an undefeated streak like Goldberg's. Although his streak is definitely even more dubious than Goldberg's toward the end. (laughs) Yes. So, like, two guys will be wrestling a match. He'll run in, powerbomb both of them, and then leave, and he'll count those as victories. So you weren't even in the match. No, (laughs) he was not. Sting is basically just Sting. Sting doesn't really have a lot of story at this point. He just... I guess he doesn't need one, really. He's Sting. He fights for the title when he wants it, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Some other entrance music starts up for a few moments, but then is replaced by Sid's. Tony says, Sid claims the Millennium Man title because as we head towards 2000, he has the best record. Number one, 2000 is not the start of the new millennium. Number two, suddenly doing well for a month qualifies you to be the Millennium Man? Yeah. Don't you have to do well for the entire millennium for that? Or, I don't know, at least a decade? Yeah, it's a little early to claim that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the month man didn't seem like a good title. Yeah, the only millennium man is, of course, the star of the show Millennium. Yes. Tanae says Sid claims that he's going to erase Goldberg's winning streak. So I guess we should be on the lookout for Sid to engage in some computer hacking because you just having a win streak does not erase the other person's. Wait, so is he the millennium man or the millennium bug? He he may be. Oh. He's, his performance is definitely quite buggy. Fair enough. <laughs> Tanae says standing in his way is a man called Sting. Tony corrects that it's the man called Sting, because there have been a lot of imitators, so clarification is important. Tony claims that after seeing so many imposters, they now know the real one on site. You, you had to see the imposters first to do that? 
You've called the man's matches for years. <laughs> no trench coat for Sting's entrance today. Oh, with the crow face paint, a biker jacket would have kind of looked cool too. That would have. I wonder if it's just the heat thing. You didn't want to wear a jacket in the heat? I can see that, honestly. The commentators thank Sting for taking the WCW presidency away from Ric Flair. Tony says that they'll name a president in a couple months, but for now, J.J. Dillon is running it as head of the executive committee. Why not just make him president then? Yeah, by the way, J.J. Dillon, his whole thing in the what, late 80s and 90s, but he was aligned with Flair. Yeah. I guess you can trust him now. Yeah, sure. Sid, nicely, politely, tries to get the bikers to quiet down, then thinks of taking a walk if they don't. He finally enters the ring after all. Stinger call. Vicious overpowers Sting, but a Sting kick sends Vicious up into the ropes in a manner that would only work if Sting not only had super strength, but also telekinetic powers. I think he was trying to get away. <laughs> sure. Moment, <but> yeah. <laughs> Multiple Stinger splashes, and Sting clotheslines Vicious outside, throws him over the barricades, I'm not entirely sure if Vicious did that on purpose, and hits the Stinger splash to Vicious on the barricade. I think that's the first time we've actually seen him hit that. Yeah. He might have at Spring Stampede 1999, but it was off camera. Correct. Back in, Vicious dodges a Stinger splash, and Sting eats turnbuckle. Vicious slowly attacks with strikes and earns two counts with a power slam and backbreaker. Chin lock, but Sting keeps the arm up on Boone's third check. Vicious rakes his eyes and keeps beating him up, earning one by dropping him on the barricades outside. Back to the chin lock. But Sting gets free, only to collide with Vicious and dazedly fall headfirst into his crotch for his favorite 1990s spot. <laughs> Sting flare karmas Vicious down from the top, but Vicious nicely trips him up on a run. Heenan and Tony compliment Tanay for spotting what happened there. Vicious kind of just raises his legs and catches Sting like for a drop toe hold. Yeah. So one nice spot I will definitely compliment there. Yeah, I thought that was good. Sting slams Vicious and tries a splash, but Vicious gets his knees up for two then drops him on the turnbuckle. Vicious up top again, and Sting superplexes him down, but Vicious just kind of stands up and walks to the other corner. I imagine that was meant to look a little more stumbly, but it was more just, oh yeah, I need to be over here next. I have a theory in that, but that's fine. Multiple Stinger splashes, until Vicious catches Sting by the throat and chokeslams him for the three count and the win. Vicious rolls out and blows his nose at fans. One more in the record book, he says. Everybody take notice, because you could be next. Heenan nicely sells the ending bit as Sid luring Sting in by absorbing the superplex and acting hurt in the corner. I get that, but it was a superplex. Mm -hmm. You don't really no-sell that unless you're a superface, right? I just don't feel like that could have been an intentional no-sell on my part. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it in general plays into the ending of the match, but yeah. I think the execution is a bit off on the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll get to this in a moment, but I have a real problem with, number one, if he's supposed to no-sell a superplex, that's just something you don't do. And number two, he then takes two stinger splashes before countering the third one, which, they're stinger splashes. This is the move that knocked out Lex Luger for like a week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be sold as like, oh, this is nothing. Well, in the new millennium, people are stronger, Bob. I guess so, yeah. Anyway, thoughts on this one? Honestly, in spite of the fact that it's a Sid match and all the crap he gets, and not saying it's wrong, but he does get a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. I actually enjoy this match for the most part. I thought Sting did a good job of making Sid look strong here. 
he really takes his offense well and he sells the impact of his strikes and counters and such. This match definitely has a real, real, real house show feel to it, where they walk around the ringside. I feel like the tipping him into the crowd thing is intentional because they then do it again. I think the second time it's intentional. I'm just not sure if the first time it was because it looks a little, uh, I don't know, hindsight too. <laughs> Execution could be an issue with it. Yeah. But the fact they do it and then they go to the other side and do the same thing really felt like it. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine you on the call go, oh, well, you messed up. Let's go to that spot again in the corner. <laughs> the idea that he could take a big move and wouldn't be down forever thinking, oh, I can get to the spot and counter him, I think in theory is fine. Again, the fact that it's superplex, to your point, is a bit much. And the fact that he takes two single flashes of kind of the third one definitely bugs me, to be fair. Yeah, I don't think it would have bothered me if he took a big move, did a better job of wobble selling his way to the corner, and then countered literally the first stinger splash. Yeah, I think if you had them both go down from the superplex, really selling it like this is the transition spot. Get the the seven count type of thing, and then he He crawls to the corner. Crawls up with the eight of the corner. Yeah, I think the idea of the finish is fine. Right. But the execution of it damages two moves. The, well, and the other thing, too, is, and this is less major critique, is that he catches him in the chokeslam in the sense that he catches him jumping in, but then walks to the corner and chokeslam. Yes, yeah. If he could have held him somehow, like how Taker can hold the guy up and you move around a bit, walked out of the corner with him in his, hand, in his grip, which would look really cool, and mm-hmm. slammed him, that'd been nice. Yeah, again, good idea, not great execution. Yeah, exactly. But, it's, but I, should, I should rephrase. Good idea okay execution for that part because the chokeslam looks good yeah yeah it still looks good i just i agree there were ways to make it better other thing is maybe sting does sting a splash a bit higher and you can hold him and walk out and powerbomb or something yeah because of things i think Morris is the powerbomb guy even though he didn't win the powerbomb match they do emphasize earlier in the match he can beat you with the powerbomb or the chokeslam correct so yeah no, no it's not like they don't build the chokeslam up but yeah i just i think of that more of his thing mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I think there's a lot of good ideas in this match, and in general, they mostly work, but yeah, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I thought this was reasonably fast while Sting controlled, and pretty slow while he didn't. Sid did put on some good power moves, I will give him that. He just took a long time between them, and didn't do much of anything else while he waited. Slightly oddly, he also uses a lot of Kevin Nash's favorite spots in this match. Yeah. Which feels a little bit weird when Nash is also going to be on the show. I thought both sides of the match were pretty simple in design, too. Sting was high energy, but roughly 90% of his offense, it feels like, was stinger splashes. Mm-hmm. I love the move, but that's maybe a few too many. And honestly, it kind of devalues it when Sid absorbs like a billion of them without apparent consequence. Yeah, it might be a logistical thing. Like, I don't know if, how many moves Sting can do to a Sid. Like, I don't know if he can throw him around as much as you would a someone else. I mean, Sting slammed Vader before. Oh, no, I'm not saying he couldn't ever, but I just mean... It's not like he's fighting a small guy where it's a more easy thing to do to suplex it than stuff. Yeah. He could, yeah. but yeah, I don't, I think it just feels like, I mean, he does, I think he does three in the row at the beginning of the match, then the one outside, and then three in the row at the end of the match, too. Mm-hmm. That feels like a lot of his offense is stinger splashes and the rest is basically striking. Yeah. And yeah, I, I will, I will honestly say, if you can't see the ending coming a mile away, well, you could have picked a better show to watch for your first ever pro wrestling experience, but I hope you come back for others. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the crowd was into this match, thanks to Sting, but for me, I found this dull, sluggish, and pretty predictable. So I don't think I would call it as positively as, as you felt towards it. Yeah, it's the thing, because 
it seems like in general, I lean, I don't love Sid. I don't pretend like Sid's great, yeah. but it seems like I I give Sid more slack, I guess, than you do. I don't know if, but yeah. if it, whether it's, I'm wrong to do that or not, I don't know, but that just seems like how it works. It, it was interesting, I will say, like when we first watched this show, I remember actually saying, this is a little better than I thought. And I think what it must have been was just warm feelings from the previous match that were still lingering a little Maybe. bit. Because when I watched this one with more of a break between it and the previous match, I did not feel that. <laughs> or maybe it's just me documenting it that like, I was like, oh, yeah, they repeat that a lot. Or, or wow, that is a long break. That I just felt the detail of it more. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I go back and document a match, I notice more details about it that are like, bring something out more Here's to a me. little touch of this spot here or this counter. Yeah, that, that make me feel warmer towards it. But this one, me going back and watching it for the notes made me feel worse about it, mm. which was, it's a little bit unusual for that to happen. Gotcha. Sid would challenge U.S. champion Chris Benoit at Fall Brawl for his title. Okay. On the flip side, Sting would challenge for the world title against the future winner of the match later on the show. Okay. So to be clear, the guy that just won the match is challenging for the U.S. title. <laughs> Good point. Good the point. The guy that lost the match is challenging for the world title. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would make sense for him to not go for the world title if he was fighting Goldberg, because clearly he's setting up to fight Goldberg. Yes. Which is at two months out, yeah. Right, but you shouldn't then have him not go for a world title match to fight someone not connected to Goldberg. I guess maybe it makes sense if he's like, Goldberg used to be U.S. champion, I'll capture the U.S. title. Right. Maybe then? Yeah, if there's a promo or something, or if like there's shenanigans that make him not win a Kendra's match or something and Sting does, that could be what, yeah. yeah. But on paper, it looks weird. That on paper, it definitely beat, looks strange, yeah. Yeah, the guy who just beat gets to fight for the world title. Yeah, yeah. Tony throws to another video package covering Goldberg versus Rick Steiner. Goldberg helped Sting and Hogan against Steiner and Nash, it looks like, and Steiner got revenge with the chair and Sid Vicious's snow shovel, of all things. Our seventh match is the dog-faced gremlin, Rick Steiner, versus Goldberg. The referee for this one is Mickey J. As mentioned in the previous match setup, we have the trio of Rick Steiner, Kevin Nash, and Sid Vicious. They're fighting all the faces, and which at this point are Goldberg, Sting, and Hulk Hogan. Also worth noting that Goldberg is coming back off of a kayfabe injury, which was excuse for him to film Universal Soldier The Return. As they mentioned on commentary. Mm-hmm. Yes, that injury was done by Rick Steiner. Gotcha. So when he comes back and is fighting again, Rick Steiner is going after his knee again because that was what supposedly took him out of wrestling for a couple months. Okay. That makes sense. That's why he knows to target that as will come up in the match itself. Rick Steiner has new music, welcoming us to the Dog Pound. He also has an awesome Beware of Dog jacket with shiny metal bulldogs on the shoulders. Mm -hmm. Tanae talks about Steiner's new attitude, but Heenan claims it's not new, it's always been there, but it's just coming out now. Goldberg gets his usual pyro shower, and Tony and Tanae build up his astonishing career, Goldberg is wearing a knee brace, as you pointed out from the previous injury. Mm -hmm. Heenan notes that Goldberg has been in a film as well, and that's where Tanae and Tony build up his prominence in Universal Soldier The Return. He does, as I understand, have a pretty major role in that film. Oh, yeah, he's like the main henchman. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. we'll have to watch that and watch Paige's movie and see which of them is more featured in their uh, film. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that already, but yes, (laughs) I will definitely have to watch them both. Goldberg knocks Steiner around with big strikes, so Steiner retreats outside. Returning, he shoves Jay into Goldberg. When Goldberg pushes Jay aside, 
Steiner punts Goldberg in the balls, takes Goldberg's knee brace off, and spends roughly the next 75 years slowly beating Goldberg up with it, Mm -hmm. repeatedly pausing to strap it on his own arm. Just never seems satisfied with it, probably because it's a leg brace, not an arm brace. One man's leg and another man's arm, Bob. Only if you had a really, really bad surgery. Yes. Tony theorizes that the knee brace is a legal weapon because Goldberg wore it to the ring. No. It is not. When engines rev, Steiner flips off the crowd and yells, F*** you. (laughs) Oh, holy crap. Steiner does at least earn two counts with a belly-to-belly suplex and a DDT. Goldberg finally wins a slugfest with a kick. Press slam, spear, jackhammer, three count, Goldberg wins. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. The commentators build up the enormity of Goldberg's win and build up this and Sid's win over Sting to set up the Sid versus Goldberg rivalry some more, which makes it doubly weird that that's not next month's match. Yeah. Today calls the instant replays, ticking off Heenan, who normally recaps those. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Such a weird match. I mean, it's such a one-sided beatdown, admittedly with a heel cheating to get advantage on Goldberg. Of all people, Goldberg is... He's uh, Ricky... <laughs> I was saying the Ricky Morton selling, but he's a singles match. Yeah, he's he's literally like inactive for 90% of this match, just getting beaten up with the knee brace. Yeah, it's a weird sort of backward logic, I think only works in wrestling, which is if you're back and you haven't wrestled a lot, he has wrestled tag matches stuff since. This isn't literally his return match, to be clear. But like if you're still coming back from injury and not as ready... You'll get beaten up by people. So the idea is like you have to memorize less spots and do less things. So getting beat up is actually a privilege in wrestling in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, you get to lie down for a while. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's such a weird way to book Goldberg because it's like you spent a year of Goldberg is dominating everybody. Can't be beaten until he's, you know, tased and all that happens. He's only been beaten one time, I think. He's still. Yeah. Yeah. This is still fighting for the second time to take Goldberg down. Yeah. Right. Right. If this is coming off of like Goldberg's second loss, for instance, and he's got to build stuff up again, so his sudden win at the end is him redeeming himself, maybe, but that's not where we're at. Yeah. He's been very strong on the shows until now. It's just odd to book him like that. And more importantly, to book him like that in such a boring fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like you have a, like a real shooter kind of guy, which Rick Turner could be, to be fair. Oh, yeah, yeah. With his actual wrestling experience. But yeah, it's just him hitting him with weapons, which are somehow legal because shut up. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tony tries his best to give it an explanation of some kind, but it's just like, no, that's that's not. If it was correct that because Goldberg wore it to the ring, mm-hmm. it became a legal weapon, why does everyone try to hide when they're using their own boot as a weapon? Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. What a stupid, boring match. Rather than doing any of the very cool things that we know he can do, Steiner just lazily beats up Goldberg with his knee brace in full view of Mickey J. Tony's shoddy explanation aside, the lack of a DQ makes zero sense. And works his leg a little bit. But none of that matters, because Goldberg just decides he's not hurt anymore, and he doesn't need the knee brace after all, and then wins in like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. They they just got done on commentary selling like, oh, you know, this is a good strategy on Rick Steiner's part because uh, Goldberg needs a good like vertical base, a good yeah. leg, leg power to hold himself up for things like the jackhammer. Right. And then it bears not at all on the ending of the match in any way, way, way shape or form. Yeah. 
This was the last match, minus the few good power moves and Sting's high energy. Mm -hmm. I never thought I would say that Rick Steiner did a worse job than Sid Vicious, but he did. Awful, awful, awful match. Yeah, you could have so much fun with these guys just beating the crap of each other, throwing people around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Rick Steiner, we know, is capable of incredible things. Yeah. Like, a, a great guy for just hurling you around. He's one of the guys that I would be really interested in seeing go toe-to-toe with Goldberg. Right. And and Goldberg has his impressive speed and power and agility that he really is a performer with genuine talent. Mm-hmm. These two guys have everything going for them. And this is what results? <laughs> You know what you could have done would have been more interesting maybe. Not hold the match? <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, that's always an option, sure. But okay, so if you're going to do this whole thing where he's just going to no-sell all that, have it be way shorter. Like, you take yeah. him down, takes the wrist off, starts working the leg, and he goes up to celebrate, and Goldberg pops up, makes a point of saying, look, my knee's fine. Right, Like, yeah. he's wearing a brace as a, as a trick, like a diversion. Yeah, yeah. Have him, like, work on his leg for a minute or so, Goldberg, you know, shoves him off, kips up, and spears him or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, I mean, it's really, I don't remember what the match length of this is, but it's got too long. Yeah, definitely. Definitely mm-hmm. too long. But yeah, it's like several minutes of him working the leg and beating him up with the knee brace in various ways. And apparently, like, none of that matters. Which, no. Why did you do it then? Right. I mean, it, you literally could have gotten the same exact amount of Goldberg offense by just cutting directly from the beginning to the end. Yeah. You would have devalued Rick Steiner less. Yeah. If They literally started the match with Spear, Jackhammer, win for Goldberg. Yeah. That was the entire match. And I would have been happier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The other thing that's kind of weird, if you, I might be just inferring a bit, but Rick Steiner constantly playing with the knee brace wrapped in his arm like some sort of shield or like gauntlet or something. It seems like he's trying to lower it when Goldberg's with a spear and like he's going to try and block it with that. Maybe. But he doesn't do it. So it's like, I'm not sure, was that intentional or was it his arm going Or did it just happen that his arm was, yeah. Because yeah, I believe at this point we've already done the angle where Bret Hart does the chest protector. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's I think that's earlier than this. Right. Yeah, yeah. This this was just bad. I mean, this, I really want to know who booked this nonsense. It's really really awful. There. Yeah. Forgotten up to this point, like in the first match, Rick Steiner is actually the TV champion. By the way. Oh good gosh. Yeah. Do you know he had a belt? No. He didn't. Which apparently isn't on the line. That's weird. Nope. Also not true. Yeah. So he will be defending his title at Fall Brawl against Perry Saturn. Huh. Which, if they book an actual match, would be great. Would be fairly interesting. Yeah. 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 I could... After seeing this, though, I expect that match to be, you know, Rick Steiner takes off Perry Saturn's arm brace and beats him with it for five minutes on the way to a loss. <laughs> Hopefully it's not. As mentioned, DP and Goldberg will have their match at Fall Brawl as well. Okay. Presumably over who had the better movie. <laughs> I don't think that's actually the story, but that would be a good story. <laughs> that would be hilarious. See our movie, TBS. It would be very appropriate for DDP to have a, a feud entirely based around who had the better script. Yes, <laughs> I can see that, yeah. Goldberg's like, script? What's that? Tony starts to throw to a video package for the upcoming Rodman versus Savage match, but the video starts up before he's done. <laughs> Oopsie. I get the sense that WCW's crew just wants to be done with this one as much as I do. Well, they just watched the Rick Steiner match, so yes. Yeah. This video features Rodman attacking Savage, HBO's Arliss building up the match for some reason, mm-hmm. Savage telling Rodman to take off his training bra, yes. and Rodman kidnapping Gorgeous George, 
then wearing the weirdest multicolored outfits ever. Uh-huh. Oh, and Savage references bringing back the driver of the Hummer, which was, to my recollection, an unresolved angle from earlier in WCW that still goes unresolved. Correct. Okay, then. Our eighth match is The Worm, Dennis Rodman, versus The Macho Man, Randy Savage, in a grudge match. Referee for this one is Billy Silverman. Oh, boy, I get to recap this story. Yes, you do. Yay! Oh, God. There's some parts of this job that I'm glad I get to hand off to Al. Yeah. I mean, I definitely don't want to do editing, believe me. But there are times where I kind of wish I could switch a case. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, uh, first off the bat, Randy Savage was just world champion like three weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, he won won on pay-per-view, then be challenged by Hogan and lose on Nitro the day after, which is the second time that has happened, (laughs) by the way. Yeah, two different shows have that happen. Yeah, he won the title. Boo, he lost the title. So at this point, he's more crazy and more pissed off because, for one thing, this is the clearly doing steroids but totally not doing steroids for any savage period. He comes back from knee injuries with, like, what, 30, 40 pounds of muscle on his chest. He's basically almost at peak bone saw level here. Yes, yeah. He's almost ready, <laughs> as he would say. So, the story is, yeah, he's crazy. He, he kicks Mona out of the group. Rez Rodman just kind of shows up. Rodman attacks Savage, who is still being a heel, by the way. He's still cheating his matches and everything. He takes Gorgeous George backstage to, like, a Brandon Lerner trailer that's back there. I guess for, like, production crew and such. Mm-hmm. The implication is he does something really bad to her because he throws part of her clothing out the oh, door. Geez. and closes it again, taunting wow. Savage with it. They engage in a war of words, which at one point Bischoff is telling them to cut both their mics, people at the back, because they're swearing a lot on, t- on TBS, but he doesn't like. Oh, my goodness. And the final bit of buildup, as mentioned, Mona, who he kicked out of the group, the future Molly Holly, she begs for her job back, wants forgiveness. He still rebukes her and pushes her down. And Robin comes out, who Robin again. Seemingly did something untoward to his girlfriend, so I guess he's the face here? Question That's mark? very confusing. Yes. Uh, Mona responds by giving Savage a low blow for rejecting her, which kind of fair, all things considered. <laughs> and then Ron beats him up some more. The Arliss stuff is interesting, so that comes up a little earlier, but it's worth noting. Arliss, if you don't know what that show is, and I barely know what it is, because I never had HBO all the time. HBO is something I'd watch on vacation, because... Hotels that have HBO. Right, right, yeah. That's my sense of HBO in the 90s. So Arliss was a show where he was a sports promoter and sports agent. So they did a wrestling episode in 99 because wrestling was never been hotter, quote unquote, 99, which I don't think ratings really... No, yeah, I'd say, especially for WCW, I would say 97. Right. In 90, arguably, maybe yeah, still, they're doing good numbers still. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, 98's pay-per-view numbers are better, but I that's think the, the the attraction of the angle is 97. Right, right. That's, that's fair, yeah. To promote the appearance on HBO, Arliss appears, the, the character, so the actor, the actor's name is Robert Wool. He appears on the show as Arliss, the yeah. character. Yes, that's very weird, right? Telling you to watch, because HBO is the only ever brave enough to have the WCW on their shows. <laughs> Yes. I must now endure the WCW from non-wrestling people as well. Not just Bret Hart. 
Oh, and Roddy Piper. That's great. He says that if you have Rodman and Savage on pay-per-view, you'll break every pay-per-view number you've ever seen. That is clearly not true. I was going to say, yeah. Is this even higher than last year or so? Uh, No, it's 120,000 less. Oh. You know, maybe they didn't know about the match. If they'd known, they would have. Yeah, yeah. Because clearly less people are watching Nitro these days, I would imagine, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's but the that, that is very weird, though, right? This guy shows up in character. Yes. On, on a, At least it's not from, like, a fantasy show or something. Right, Like, right. you know, we'll have with Brick Steiner and Chucky at some point. Uh-huh. But it's still very strange. It's Yeah. The closest approximation is when they had the villain from No Holds Barred reappear briefly. Right, yeah. Even though he, spoiler, dies in the movie. Yes. But he chucked an electric equipment. He appears briefly to set up the match where Zeus, the character, but also the actor playing Zeus, question mark, yes, appears and tells Hogan for making him look bad in the movie, which was scripted. Yeah. Now he's going to fight him in wrestling, which is not scripted. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. That one. Um, the other thing it was making me think of was the bit on the first class of the champions where they can't quite decide if uh, Jim Cornette is talking to the uh, guy that played Eddie Haskell or oh, actual yeah. Eddie Haskell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the, it like seems to mix realities a little bit there. Yes, it's very confusing. But yeah, so in summary, Randy Savage is insane and violent to people around him and the women around him. Des Rodman possibly committed a sex crime, and now I want to see who wins the fight between these two, apparently. Apparently so. Yes. As we wait for the entrances... Tony advertises Sturgis's shops, including piercings. Heenan asks about what parts of the body you might get pierced and names the ears and navel, and Tony says he should stop right there. Mm-hmm. Asbury Saturn. The music we heard at the start of Sid's entrance starts up again. It just kind of plays for a while as we get shots of the crowd. It's actually a pretty good tune. Maybe we can just listen to it for a while instead of having to watch this match. No. Sadly, Rodman finally emerges in a hooded, shiny red robe, and walks to the ring, walking down the ramp like he's drunk. I, I don't think he actually is. It's just a really weird way to walk. Supposedly, when he was at Bash the Beach, he was drunk, so I don't know. <laughs> Heenan, speaking of the robe, jokes that a hotel must be missing a shower curtain. Yes. What up, Mach? Macho Man makes his entrance as we get awful, shaky, glitchy helicopter footage. I also hate his theme song. You do? Really? I'd never heard this before. <laughs> I do, however, like his shiny Macho Man face shirt. Uh huh. The commentators point out the absence of gorgeous George as Macho doesn't want her kidnapped again. Rodman gets a mic. Rodman says, Savage brought Rodman here to kick his right? Well, where's Rodman's Rodman throws him the mic, and Savage tells Rodman, tonight, he's Savage's I didn't see that coming. And everyone else can fight for sloppy seconds. I'm not sure what that means in this context. Uh, yeah. Rodman says something unintelligible and clubs Savage with the mic. DQ, match over. No. No, just my wishful thinking. They don't ever explicitly say it, but I'm guessing this grudge match is no DQ. Uh Uh-huh. Rodman flings Savage into stuff outside. Inside, Rodman hits a back elbow, a short arm clothesline, and a Russian leg sweep for two. Tony and Tanay act like he's the second coming of Ricky Steamboat. They do, yes. Rodman protests the count, decks Silverman, and elbow drops him. Scratch one ref. Mickey J comes out to be our second referee. Mm-hmm. The crowd chants for Rodman as somehow he's the good guy in any of this. Yeah, that's the thing. Okay, so he's wearing the robe, 
like Chris Jericho as a heel last year. But then he takes it off when he's wearing a Sturgis shirt. So I guess that, yay, Sturgis, our hometown. That's that. We thought. forgot we just did. Yeah. Also a Nitro. Savage gouges the eyes, kicks, and chokes Rodman. Heenan says, Rodman just keeps coming back. He, he just took his first hits of the match. I know, right? Jay allows lots of choking. Tony says it might be because he wants revenge for Silverman. Or maybe because it's no DQ, but apparently from Tony's comment, it might not be no DQ, so who the heck knows? Ah, yeah. Savage, Dex WSW Magazine editor Ross Foreman at ringside, takes his camera and rams into Rodman's face for two. Savage protests the count and Dex Mickey J. So there goes referee number two. Scott Dickinson gets in and Savage KOs him immediately, so there goes ref number three. I feel like we need to replace the interview with theme count with dead ref count. Yes, yeah. Rodman and Savage end up outside, and just as Tony is noting that Rodman's various piercings could be used against him, Savage wrenches on the nose ring. Point for that, at least. Mm-hmm. Minus about a million points for everything else, but point for that. That's step up. Savage throws Rodman to the barricade, wanders away to look for something, doesn't find it, and just comes back. Yeah. Johnny Boone is finally out to be our fourth referee. Savage slowly walks Rodman all the way backstage without a single punch. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Rodman arm drags him down the ramp to backstage, but Savage shoves him into some garbage, throws a guy out of a porta potty shoves Rodman inside, and tips the thing over. Boone opens the door, and Pooh leaks out, giving us a perfect visual metaphor for my opinion of this match. Yeah. Doug Dellinger gets them to head back into the ring. Rodman reverses a Savage shove into a lighting rig. Boone checks on Savage, and Savage dodges a Rodman flying clothesline, so Boone gets nailed. Downed referee number four. <laughs> we have now bested Hart versus Goldberg from Starcade 1999. Oh, right. Breaking records. Gorgeous George appears as Savage counters a sleeper hold with a jawbreaker. George hands Savage a chain, slugs Rodman in the balls, and makes her exit as Savage slugs Rodman with the chain for fifth ref Nick Patrick to deliver the three count and the win. Patrick raises the hand with the chain on it to declare Savage the victor, so either this indeed was no DQ, or Patrick just decided he gave about as much of a crap about this match as I did by this point. Thoughts on this one? Oh, boy. Uh, Let's see my detailed notes I took for this. Punching. Joking. All right, porta potty and poor refs. That was the extent of my episode for this match. Yeah. Uh, it's there's so many odd things in this match. This Rodman controls so much at the beginning, which maybe is supposed to be like a misdirection thing in Savage's mind. Like, I'm the big you know wrestling star, but look, he countered me. Look how great he is. Like, maybe that's the idea. Yeah. And he wants to overcome that. That's maybe the logic there. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, if Rodman comes in and Savage just beats the ever living crap out of him, then that would be very entertaining, but would not be surprising at all. Right. Yeah. Having Rodman get the early offense does make sense as a twist that he right. actually is a decent fighter. Yeah. Uh, so I wish I could find something interesting to say about the action in the ring and around the ring, but uh, no. I mean, the very least with the Savage match, you're like, well, it's not going to be great, but it's going to be meticulously planned out. You'll probably get a good Savage elbow. Mm-hmm. Maybe get his half running, half stepping off axe handle somehow. I mean, you get one of those. Get him get an elbow for some reason. I think he could wrap the chain around his elbow and do a drop or something. Yeah. He kind of just dives half from his knees with like a 
He does this this weird, like, almost slide into a punch, but not in a cool way. No. It's just like, it looks almost like he tripped and punched the guy. Right, right. It's <laughs> almost like a phenomenal forearm, but from the ground. Yeah. It's, it's really awkward looking, yeah. It's like he thought Robin was closer and just was a little further away. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then they gotta get backstage before that, and they come with the brilliant idea of throwing a random guy, which I hope was a part of the planned spot. I would assume it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah into a porta potty and then tipping it over why like what do you get out of tipping rodman in the porta potty over you then have to continue to wrestle this man right who right. you have now stained with poo right yeah look if you if you tip the porta potty over pull him out of the porta potty and immediately pin him with one foot then you benefit from that maybe right but if you go on to wrestle this man <laughs> yeah that's bad for you <laughs> right right there's the great tiny line which is it's gonna get real stinky around here yeah pretty soon I mean, if you could do purported parties about to begin with, which I don't think you should, maybe have, like, throw him against it and then, like, do, like, some sort of body check thing so he he's against it. He's not in it. Yeah. Like, he's knocked over with it or something. Yeah. Or I could see using that spot in, like, a, I don't know, a ladder match or something where you don't have to pin the guy, so you just you tip it over and then sprint to the ring hoping to climb the ladder. Right. And so it's less about that he got stained in poo and more about... The fact that he's trapped in an object that you've locked. Right, right. And gives you time to get to the ring. But mm-hmm. again, I can't see doing this in a match where I have to continue willingly making contact with this person. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, you didn't comment on uh, Savage's outfit other than his front of his vest. You know it's odd about his outfit? I did not. Okay. So, he has the shiny vest with his face on it, on the front. Yes. And then the exact same on the back. Yes, that is true, Yes. He also has Macho on his left front leg, Macho on his left right <laughs> right leg, Macho on his back right leg, and Macho on his back left leg. Okay. He is quadruple Macho. Yeah, he is the Macho, 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 Macho Man. Yes. Which is a little bit too much for that song, right? Yeah, yeah. It's only <laughs> three, I believe, yeah. Yeah. I will say, having had to watch way too much of this, Savage's normal outfit is very similar to that. But he has him on the front of the shirt and then Gordish George in the back. Ah. So he just like... He didn't want Rodman to kidnap the shirt either. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, so he took like... He took two different ones he had, took like... And just made them together to make a shirt. I can see him doing that. That's the sad yeah. part. I could actually see Savage in his hotel room being like, I need to need to sew me a new shirt. <laughs> I need a thimble. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sally, my... Admittedly, fairly decent race to have a depression. It's about the best they can get out of this match. Yeah. What an absolute horror show of a match. Yeah. I had hope for this when it started because, as you pointed out, Savage, like DDP, has a reputation for well-plotted matches mm-hmm. that can end up at least decent, even with poor performers. Yeah. But this? This was garbage. Yeah. Rodman does a couple basic moves, and the announcers act like he's Ricky Steamboat. Then they just brawl around aimlessly, bring poop into the picture, uh-huh. and wander back to the ring for a quick interference finish. Yeah. I know Rodman was somehow the face in this situation, despite being a kidnapper at best. Yeah, at best, yes. In storyline. Yeah. But George and Savage became mega faces for me for ending this. <laughs> right? Jay Leno's match was better. Yeah. Admittedly, that's in part because he was barely in it. Uh-huh. But still... How did they have so little content to this and yet still decide to put it on? Right. What an absolute waste of airtime. Yeah. 
for contrast, we definitely, when we get to Bash the Beach, we have to see the tag match where he's on one side with DDP. Can DDP make something out of this? Yeah, that would be direct contest, Savage versus DDP on who does better with Rodman, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's, there's a third one, too, isn't there? Or, or a mixing match? Uh, no, I think there is with... Giant and Lex, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So, aside from a random Thunder appearance in 2000 and a house show match, this is actually the end of Rainy Savage at WCW. <sighs> yes. That's an enormous shame. About a month after this show, he appears, he has an in-ring promo where he says he wants to challenge the future, someone to take the torch from him. Right, right. And then disappears for four months. <laughs> and then never wrestles another match in, officially on camera again with them. Wow. Uh, Rodman would have one more match, but thankfully not in WCW, so we'll probably never cover it. He'd wrestle for a company called iGeneration Superstars of Wrestling, which is a very obtuse name where he would challenge their champion, which is Kurt Hennig. That sounds probably not likely to go better than this, yeah. but at least, I mean, at least it's Hennig. He could probably manage something. It would be astounding with history books if Randy Savage has a terrible match with Des Rodman and Kurt Hennig has a terrible match with him as well. Oh my gosh. And you were like, the famous line of wrestling a broom? Yeah. Apparently that only goes so far. I was going to say, that's the one person you'd then have to have him have a match again to just really check for sure is Ric Flair. Yes. If Flair cannot get anything from you, you're toast. Right. Oh, man. Tony throws to one more video package, this one for Hogan versus Nash, career versus career, and for the world title as well. Basically, they hate each other, and Hogan's gone back to the red and yellow colors. Mm -hmm. So our final match is Big Sexy Kevin Nash versus Hulk Hogan in a career versus career match that's also for Hogan's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Referee, Nick Patrick, since he's the only referee left standing. Fair enough. So Hogan is world champion again, as I mentioned slightly angrily in my previous match recap setup. He would win the title from Randy Savage, the Nitro, after Savage won it. As a bonus, Savage won in a tag match. Okay. But on the plus side, Savage would win it by pinning the actual champion in tag match, so it's better. Okay, and it wasn't his own partner? It was not. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> done that on one song. We've already done that, yes, in 2000, correct. Holy crap. But yeah, so what they would do is, they would basically do a reverse of what happened before Spring Stampede 98, I believe, if I'm right, where Savage wins it from Sting. Right. The idea was, in that one, is Kevin Nash comes out and powerbombs Savage's opponent to help him win the title. In this one, he comes out and powerbombs Savage, costing him the title. Okay. But then he calls out Hogan, saying, you know, basically he wanted Hogan to be champion, that's why he did that. Soon we didn't like Ray Savage either, but his main reason was just to give the title to the guy so he could beat him. So I can get the title, because Savage, I guess, wasn't facing him for some reason? I mean, they just fought for the title, so I don't know why it would matter. Okay. Yeah. Not a lot of logic, necessarily, in these setups. Yeah. As noted, Hogan is a face. It's a very weird transition because he's definitely a bad guy going into a match with Flair where he basically stops wrestling like a heel in that match. Yeah, they, they kind of do a heel. double turn during yeah, Uncensored 99, right? Yeah. He wrestles like a face again, but he's still in the NWO until he just kind of isn't anymore. And on the go-home show, his son Nicholas gives him the red and yellow, says you should represent the people again. And he says he's mending his ways, but he doesn't exactly do anything to mend his ways. Yeah, I know he, like, saves uh, Sting at one point in the video package, but... Oh, and this will shock you. So, 
Sting wants to wrestle with him, but Sting makes sure to tell him that I'll trust you, but if you betray me, I'll get you. <laughs> he never said that before. You know, you know, fair enough to Sting though that he is very bad about choosing who to trust, but he is also quite good at the getting them part after they betray him. Yeah, yeah. That's like true. he he does keep getting caught by the betrayal, but then they keep getting caught by the inevitable Sting beatdown. So true, true, yeah. <laughs> In case this is your first show, I'm not a fan of Hogan. In case you've missed that so far. But it's a little weird to me that he's world champion. He's got to defend his title and also his career in the same match. It's a little strange. Like, why does it need that escalation? Yeah. It feels yeah. like something's going to happen to keep the title on, say, Savage or somebody else. And then because of that, they're feuding over who gets to stay there. Yeah. Maybe. If the world title was not involved, career versus career makes sense. And I would even accept that going on after the world title for right. especially when Hogan's one of the ones that the career is threatened sure, on because sure. the dude's had a 20 year uh, almost 20 year career this about yeah, yeah yeah that's one of those few stipulations that you can see going on after a world title yeah. match even yeah it just feels like the title being there's a hat on a hat yeah as they say Michael Buffer does our ring introductions in a super light gray tux yes yeah. a little bit weird mm-hmm. he emphasizes that the retirement of the loser will definitely be permanent oh yeah NWO Wolfpack theme count, one. Nash gets bright, fiery pyro on the stage. Buffer says all his fame and glory are on the line here. What, like, if he loses, they'll use that Men in Black memory eraser to blank out Kevin Nash's very existence from our minds? Where was that for the last match? (laughs) Yeah. Because otherwise, he's still going to be famous even if he loses here. Yeah. Tony and Heenan discuss whether Nash is more after the title or more after eliminating Hogan. Tony claims the belt has existed for 95 years. That's very much not true for the physical belt, which was first seen in the 80s, but roughly true for the championship, if you include the NWA World Heavyweight Championship as part of its lineage, even though WCW separated for them, and if you then further include the original World Heavyweight Wrestling Championship established in 1905, which is generally considered to be part of the NWA title's Mm -hmm. lineage. So... True by pro wrestling standards, anyway. Oh, say, so isn't there a whole weird thing where an NWA champion leaves to go to Vince McMahon as well, which sort of complicates things? Yes. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of complexity, but I think overall, the WSW World Heavyweight title can maybe be traced back to the NWA title, which can maybe be traced back to this first title. I'm surprised they didn't just go all in and say, champion once held by Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. NWO theme count, zero. Yay! Hogan comes out in the red and yellow to American Made, his first WSW theme, instead of the NWO theme, which darn near earned him my MVP award right there. (laughs) (laughs) He does his classic entrance and looks to be having a lot of fun with it. He does. And hey, we finally got face Hogan at Sturgis for real after the crowd thought he was a face the first year. Yep. See, they were right, just three years too early. Mm Mm-hmm. Correct. Heenan actually seems to cheer for Hogan. He does. Telling him to kick Nash like a dog. What universe is this that we're in? But seconds later, Heenan says he's never liked Hogan, so apparently we came back from Bizarro World rather quickly. Oh, good. Nash shoves Hogan into the corner twice, but Hogan gets encouragement from the crowd and manages to shove Nash into the corner, then slaps his butt to taunt Nash. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Is he Rikishi or something? On a Nash headlock, Hogan yells so loud that you'd think he was Lex Luger. (laughs) Nash holds on through a few escape attempts, 
but Hogan finally back suplexes him. Nash rolls out and Hogan hits a plancha. Just kidding. Yeah, right. Nash gets back in. Test of strength, and Nash gets Hogan to his knees, but Hogan powers back only for Nash to sneak in a knee strike. Nash wears Hogan down with strikes and his extended boot choke, but Hogan dodges a corner elbow and lands punches, finishing with a wind-up punch. Hogan pokes the eyes and slugs Nash down, but Nash gets his own eye poke. Forearm from Nash, and Hogan cries out that he's too strong! (laughs) Heavy strikes by Nash, and he earns two with a sidewalk slam, then flings Hogan into a lighting scaffold outside. Back in, Nash hits a big boot, and the commentators call it Hogan's move like Nash had never done it before. Right? Yeah, Yeah. uh, bizarre. Come on. (laughs) Jackknife powerbomb. For two. Hulk up. Hogan ignores punches. Tony points out his forehead is bleeding, though. You! Punch, 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 whip, big boot, leg drop, three count, Hogan win. Yep. The commentators say no one can beat Hogan now. Fireworks go off as the commentators note that Nash's career is definitely permanently over now. Hogan celebrates with the big gold belt. Thoughts? <sighs> it's a very s- slow punch-filled match, for sure. There's this very bizarro aspect to it, where Nash and a lot of this is wrestling heel Hogan match. Yes. Against face Hogan. Yes, yes, exactly. Also, his headlock is weird. His headlock is a normal, like, crush. It's like he has his arms, like, in, like, an X pattern or something. Yeah, like, weird. I noticed that, too. He's, like, riding on his cheek or something. Yeah, it doesn't look bad, but it's just, it's a weird... It's very odd. ...way of putting it on, yeah. Yeah. He's not really using his bicep, but he's, like, trying to rub the bone against the bone or something. Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing Nash put on a headlock like that no. before. I, it feels unique to this match. Right. It's weird that they say, yeah, Nash doing the boot is Hogan's boot, because we know that's Sid's move, obviously. (laughs) Obviously, that's the Sid thing. Come on. (laughs) It's so bizarre. This match is basically a 1990s Hogan match, but it's 1999. Yes. We're also the new millennium, aren't we? That's not the whole point of Sid Vicious. (laughs) But yet, here we are, and we're surprised that this happens. Uh, I mean... Maybe you could argue that Nash is surprised because Nash never teamed up with Face Hogan, so he never saw this firsthand. Yeah, and, and and Hogan's been a heel for so long that I don't know if Nash has ever actually fought him in face mode either. I don't believe so. He's conspicuously absent when the thing starts. Right. One, to do a movie, but also to sell the story. If you can assume that Nash has never watched wrestling in his entire life, mm-hmm. then he may not have seen the usual Hulk up sequence and Hogan's general face act but yeah yeah it's that's always the thing with that entire sequence is like there's a lot of guys that do kind of their version of a hulk up sequence right sure they have uh you know magic recovery from the damage they've taken seen a couple others on this show in fact yes and then a certain sequence of moves that almost always happens before the end like i mean even bret hart had his what were they what they called the five moves of doom correct yes or you know goldberg always having the the spear jackhammer combo Mm -hmm. but there's ones that are a little more believable, where it's more the guy himself doing a certain sequence of moves. Right. And then there's the ones that, like the Hulk up, eventually get to that point, but have this weird moment that always happens where the heel has to do a specific thing. Yeah. And always does it. Yeah, yeah. Nash does the same 
thing that everyone who has ever faced Hogan in his entire career has done mm-hmm. is, oh, he's ignoring my my strikes. I think I'll continue striking him a couple more times with the same exact punch that everyone else does when they get in this situation. Oh my goodness, it didn't work. Yeah. I don't have a problem with the Hulk up once it gets to the point where Hogan does the you and punch, punch, punch bit. Yeah. That gets it to the point where it's just everyone's ending sequence thing that they do. Yeah. Do a combo of strikes and end it. Yeah. But the point beforehand has always bothered me, especially when it comes in a match against a guy that supposedly knows Hogan well. Right, right. Like you pointed out, at least we can say Nash never really teamed up with face Hogan. Right. But it's it's just bizarre, right? Like I know yeah, yeah, yeah. I know like and this is not the WCW only thing. This is uh even back when uh Hogan and Savage had their like hugely popular feud. Yes. That's like in the end of that match as well, as Savage responding to the Hulk up the same way that everyone always yeah. responds to it. You spent a year teaming with the buddy. You you know this man. Yeah, right? Like at least try something different. It it wouldn't even bother me if they tried something different and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the entire point of the Hulk up is that he's like supercharged by energy, so he's able to shrug off whatever you do. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you always have to do the exact same move. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a bizarre thing. You were Nash falls for all the same tricks and it has the exact same result. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, th- this was not good. I do have to say Hogan and Nash's big characters make it a little better than the prior slow plotting matches without much variety. Sure. But it is still a slow plotting match without much variety. It's almost entirely basic strikes. As you pointed out, yeah, almost exactly the structure of the Hogan Giant match from yes. 96. <laughs> just with two very experienced performers in the roles they're entirely comfortable with instead of a rookie and a recently turned heel. Right. So in other words, this should have been a lot more complex and a lot better. Correct. But it wasn't. No. And again, if you didn't see that finish coming from a mile away, congratulations on finally escaping that time vortex you fell into back in the early 1980s. <laughs> it was a little bit fun to see the Hulkamania act again after so much NWO Hogan, but that wore off pretty quickly. Yeah. It just can't sustain the match on his own. It's the problem. They needed something more. Yeah. And the guys just didn't add anything more to it. Well, that's the other thing. Okay, so as we established, the trio is Rick Steiner, Sid Vicious, and Kevin Nash. Yes. And when it's the most important match of the show, where are Rick Steiner and Sid Vicious? Yeah, you could have had some more interference in it. At least attempted interference. Yeah, and... and Have them run out and they try to stop it. And just honestly, like, I mean... Well, Hogan is not my favorite either. I think it's kind of, it's an interesting thing, right? Like, yeah. um, you defend Sid Vicious more than more than I will ever defend him. Right. Sure. And I think I, I, I have a little bit more of a soft spot for Hogan, I think just owing to his tremendous success in the business that right. I, I, I appreciate his charisma, I think. is the Okay, yeah, sure. But I'll, I'll still, even with that, I'll admit that he's not my favorite. But he's better than this. Yeah. And Nash is better than this. Both of them have demonstrated repeatedly in in earlier matches that they have more to offer than they offer in this match. And it feels so weird, especially because it doesn't look like they're angry at each other. It doesn't look like they're... I mean, Hogan even looks like he's having a good time for a lot of the match. So it's weird that we don't get more from them. Yeah. It doesn't feel like this is all they have. Yeah. It just feels like they don't give it, but there's not like a reason for it. Like, okay, easy booking. So you get to the ending part where he's going for the big boot leg drop thing. He does a big boot, and as he runs out the rope, Sid Vicious grabs his ankle. And it, it very least it distracts him. He's like, hey, what are you doing? And then they circumvent the straight Hogan ending, and they get there in five minutes after some more interesting stuff happened. Right, yeah, yeah. I don't have a problem with Hogan winning this match. No. 
that's fine. I don't even have that much of a problem with the whole like kick out of the jackknife powerbomb thing. That's that's Hogan's thing. Yeah. And it's not like the jackknife is a move like the diamond cutter or something where like no one ever gets to kick out of this thing. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that again, it's the exact same thing we've always seen from a Hogan match. Admittedly, we've been a few years since we've seen it, but the fact that we just see this again and that, like you said, there's there's opportunities to evolve this yeah, match. There's opportunities to do something else and they don't. Yeah. Thinking of face Hogan matches, ones that I actually liked. Mm-hmm. I, I remember being reasonably pleased by the one he has against Kidman on um, Slambury 2000, I think it was. Yeah. You know, they do something different with that. Sure, yeah. That match, I think, proves that you can do something different with Hogan. Yeah. He is able to evolve his formula. Mm-hmm. And and do interesting things with it. And I realize that part of the point of this match is bringing back the old formula that has been missing for about four years. Mm-hmm. But it just needed to be more. Yeah, yeah, agree. And I think you still could have done the bringing back the formula, even still done the whole Hulk up finish and everything, but had more interesting things happen in the middle of it. And that's what's missing. Mm-hmm. Agreed, 100%. Hogan, as mentioned, would be challenged for the title by Sting. Okay. I'll still see how that makes any sense after... Again, just losing to Sid, but sure, we'll figure that out. I think this is approaching the one point in his career where Sting actually does turn heel as well. Maybe. So, do you want to guess how long it is till Nash appears on Nitro? Three months. No. He reappears on the October 4th Nitro. Okay. He doesn't actually come back and wrestle on the October 4th Nitro. He comes back through the crowd, him and Scott Hall appear and sit in the front row, and he, quote, bring the band back together. Gotcha. He makes one more appearance. He disappears before after this. He makes one more appearance, however, on supposedly the last show he was the head booker on, which is the October 10th Thunder. He appears at the beginning of the show. He's the guest commentator for the show. Okay. He explains that he booked himself into the best angle he could, which is retirement. Oh, geez. And that the front office wanted to recoup some of the money, so they made him a commentator. <laughs> he then proceeds to tell stupid jokes and... Mix up people. He, he mixes up Al Green for a tag partner with the Reverend Al Green, for instance. Ah. Uh, he makes a stupid names for people. He makes fun of video package because it doesn't start correctly. Like, there's a weird thing where video package doesn't have the sound playing. So he just talks over it. <laughs> he basically just riffs it on the show, apparently. Okay. I will give him one point, however. The main event match on that Thunder he books is a tag match involving La Parca. Okay, well, you just won your MVP for that night, right? Yeah, he, he booked the park and main event match. <laughs> Sadly, with both Bagwell. Okay. So, mixed blessings. I can picture Nash on commentary either going really, really well or really, really badly, depending on his mood. He really, really thinks he's funny. That's yeah, the I can honestly see, like, if he's in the right mood for it, he could be a quite a good commentator, because he's, he's a good talker. Yeah. He's got a lot of charisma. He... Obviously knows the business. He's been in it for a long time. Uh And he can be quite funny. Yeah. He isn't always funny when he thinks he's funny, but he can be quite funny. Yeah. So I can see that actually working. It's not like it didn't, but I can see it actually working. So do you know how long it is before he actually does wrestle again? I know he is in 2000 at some point. Uh, um, I don't have the exact appearance, but I know obviously he's back for the interview at 2000 angle, which he's hinting at on that show there. Yes. Tony proclaims this is Hogan's best ever title reign as we get one more crappy, shaky helicopter shot to sign the series off. (laughs) 
and Road Wild 1999 is done. Overall thoughts on Road Wild 1999. Okay, so like last year, they had the good set. Mm-hmm. Also like last year, they don't do anything with the good set. Yep. You can book a street fight and have it take place specifically on the street rampway you have, for one. That'd be fun. Yeah. The match quality is pretty varied, but unfortunately, it tends to vary towards the bad or in very bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not as negative on the whole show as you are, because I give certain people a little slack one way or the other, but I'm not going to pretend that the last half of the show minus the DDP Benoit match is great. Right. It's definitely not great. Some of it is very, very bad, featuring people you really know can do better and know should do better, and you honestly don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. It's also, as mentioned before, it's oddly put together, because... And three tag matches in a row, two which are six-man tag matches, mm-hmm. and then nothing but singles matches the rest of the show. Yeah. You make your singles matches stand out by having tag matches and vice versa. That's kind of how that works. Yeah. If memory serves, the last three shows had a total of two tag matches per show. I think so, yeah. And they're all spaced out. One's exactly. like opening and one's like second some event match. Yeah. And even not as good show like 98 would have battle royale which wasn't great but at least it's a different kind of match and mm-hmm. yeah you had much more variety it felt like in the previous shows yeah it's just front loaded with decent tag matches that are perfect and have issues albeit small ones and then singles matches which range from really dull to okay but not great to dance robin versus Vinny savage and then you have this bizarre return to 80s hogan on a show, it's all about building up the young talent like Benoit, who you, you're building up as nearly Superman as defending the U.S. title. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, Hogan's still here, and he's still 1983. Everything's great. Yeah. The end. Yeah, four shows in, you would think that WCW would have a polished, well-crafted show that ironed out the problems of prior years. You would very much be wrong. Yeah. This was by far the worst of the Hogwild, Roadwild shows. Agreed beating out the quite bad 1998 show by a fair bit. Uh-huh. The bad on this show was more sustained and just plain boring, and the few good points on the show do not rise to the level of the good points of 98. The first three matches vary between okay to moderately good. Mm-hmm. The fourth match falls off a cliff. Oh, yeah. The fifth agonizingly drags the show back up the entire cliff, nearly to the top, promising a little hope. But then the cliff itself crumbles as matches six through nine send it plummeting back down into the abyss. And there's a lot of people I like in those last four matches. Yeah. Sting, Savage, Goldberg, Rick Steiner. Heck, I'm honestly rather fond of Kevin Nash. Mm -hmm. But none of them managed to put on a really acceptable match. You still get some good character work at times, but barely any spurts of good action. As for promos... A heck of a lot of people cut very, very quick in-ring promos that added little to nothing to their matches and told us nothing in particular about their characters, probably owing to the fact that people didn't really have much going on story-wise other than we dislike each other. Yeah. You've got to have something to work with to cut a good promo. The video packages didn't help much. You could get a very general sense of the feuds that led to this point, but only in the broadest strokes. Too many quick cuts... Too little explanation and story detail. It's also always the same theme every time. Yes. It's still better than some of the Russo-era promo uh, video packages. Oh, yeah. But only just. Uh, yeah, I know there's one show, I can't remember which it is anymore, where the video packages are out of order. 
It's like, see this very much to your Kevin Nass match. And it's like three matches later. Yeah, yeah. What? Commentary was mostly fine. Yeah. Until the last few matches. Heenan gets in a few good jokes, and the team as a whole does have quite a few good discussions that bring out story points in the matches, though there's some perplexing comments in the midst as well. Mm Mm-hmm. But those last few matches, the team just has to build up the action that's happening like it's epic and surprising and masterful, and it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's so visibly poor that commentary to the contrary just sounds blatantly dishonest and over-exaggerated. Right. The worst offenses come in the Savage Rodman match, where the team is tasked with making it sound like Dennis Rodman is one of the greatest of all time when he pulls off some of the most basic wrestling moves Mm -hmm. and brawls for a little bit. Yeah. Tony being tasked to explain why there's not a DQ in the Steiner-Goldberg match is a runner-up. Yeah. Production was a step backward from last year. The set's basically the same, but we've lost the license plate graphics. Yeah. And the new crappy WSW logo is here, which hurts just about any show. (laughs) True. Oh, and we've mostly lost our raised ring, with the platform this year so low that one wonders why they're bothered. Yeah. Other than that, all the worst parts of the prior shows are here, including my ever-despised helicopter footage, Which never adds a darn thing to the show. No. Ever. In four years in, I have grown extremely tired of the Sturgis atmosphere. It was neat once or twice, but this year it just mostly made parts of the show I already disliked worse. Like extending the already unnecessary and unrevealing promo segments because wrestlers had to wait for bikers to be done revving before they could speak. Oddly, it's also underused, with not a single match having anything to do with any kind of biker theme. They really abandoned the biker thing... Pretty much after 96. Yeah, yeah. I think the Steiners come out on bikes yeah. in 97, but that's, that's it. about it. Yeah, yeah. By the way, WCW is famous for having a King of the Road match, which did not take place on any of these shows. Yes. Baffling. Not that it would make it better. Oh, no. But it would but be I mean, appropriate. I mean, it would be the same King of the Road match, but a, a match called that should be on the show when they have an actual road to the ring. Yes. All told... This was one heck of a crappy way to end the series. The Hog or Road Wild series started out with some promise. An interesting location and atmosphere, a neat ring setup, some fun with road trips, a unique feel. The problem is, four years in, there's nothing unique about the feel anymore. Yeah. We've lost a lot of the interesting elements from prior shows, and we're left with a string of mostly poor matches that do not serve as an effective replacement. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe catch DDP Benoit, but the rest of this I feel you can pretty much skip. You had occurred to me, I, did, I can't even didn't think of this until now, there's someone missing from this show as well as on every other show. Where's Gene Okerlund? Interesting, yeah. Not once. No, yeah. No hotline plug. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he left the company yet. No, I, no, I, think, he's, I think he's still around. Yeah, I think he's around in 2000. Yeah. So it's like he left and he just, his absence is that way. He's just not on this show to promote a hotline or anything. Yeah. Yeah, that is an odd absence. It's like he had a dance appointment, so he couldn't be there. So they take all the segments where he'd be interviewing people backstage, or on, on the stage even. And I just do it in the ring. Yeah, without anyone asking a question to focus yeah. you. Yeah. I will say, if you do it once in the show, the idea like, say, Canyon's promo, where he trying to, instantly trying to cut a promo to the crowd, and they cut him off. Yeah. I like that for one time on the show. Exactly. I, I think that's the that's problem. That's one of the big problems with this show, both in ring and in the promos and stuff. There's just too much repetition going on mm-hmm. here. You have people getting interrupted by the bikers and trying to cut a promo anyway multiple times. You have the three tag matches in a row. You have almost the same ending to all three of the tag matches. Yes. You have the repeated guy tries to 
throw another guy at a partner that he's got in the apron and oops, it gets reversed yeah. spots uh-huh. that happen all over this show. Uh-huh. Going a little further, you have three matches where it's a one-sided match and someone makes a Superman come back and you've got the Benoit DDP, Goldberg, Steiner, and Hogan Nash. Yeah. It's not done the same way every time no. in that case, but still, like, all throughout the show, there's these repeated themes. Yeah, yeah. It really starts to take away from the show when it, it just seems like no one talked to each other about what they were going to do in their matches. And you see the same stuff over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. Well, th- th- yeah, there's a weird contrasting logic on this show, I think. So on one hand, they're treating this like a house show in the sense that even though big things happen, like supposedly Kevin Nash is retired forever, quote unquote, and you know, tiles are on the line, they treat it like they just sort of go through the motion. Let's do this match like same way we've done it four other times you know, Poughkeepsie and wherever else. So that's why they seem so lackluster and inspired in some of the later matches, especially. Yeah. But at the same time, they're really into playing with the live crowd. Yeah. So the matches for people watching at home or in this case, watching 20 plus years later on, on, a, on a computer don't play the same way because I'm watching you have fun with these guys over here and then not getting a match I'm paying for. They play with the crowd to the exclusion of actually having a yeah. match. Yeah. Rather than, we've seen on some earlier shows, wrestlers have a good interaction with the crowd while not losing the match. Yes. On this show, it seems like repeatedly they end up losing the match. Yeah, there's two very distinctly different ways to watch this show. One is the way most people, including us, will watch it, which is on a computer or on your streaming, what have you. Even in, back then, you watch it on pay-per-view on your TV at home. Right. Then there's the 5,000 of people that saw it around the ringside here had a blast yelling at canyon and you know trying to grab Sammy tipped over the railing and all this stuff they had a great time mm-hmm. we don't get that experience right yeah you cater to this tiny demographic in this one area who were not paying correct <laughs> and then to the detriment of everybody else yeah so it's weird they like care so much about foreign for this crowd in front of them but not the crowd behind the camera watching the show mm-hmm but also, they don't care enough about forming at the show to really work that hard. Yeah. It's a really weird, really bad show. Yeah. And it's time for our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, your match of the night. I mean, it's probably, I'm pretty sure we're going to be on the same page here. No pun intended. <laughs> that just actually happened. I will say I enjoyed the Sid Sting match more than you. I absolutely see the issues with it. And I'm pretty clear that I'm not defending every aspect of making sense. That said, the only match that really stands out as a complete package, everything together, is DDP Benoit for me. Mm-hmm. I know the tag matches more than you do, but there's so many little things I can pick apart that don't quite work for me. Yeah. Uh, the one that gets closest to me is that third one, the six-man tag with the Revolution. Rednecks and Revolution one. Correct, yeah. That one has the best going for it. Yeah. But for me, it still comes nowhere close to DDP Benoit for just being this complete design package. Yeah. It's the only match I can genuinely call just w- without any kind of qualifiers good yeah. on the entire show. It has a good storyline, some creative spots, big character from DDP. It's still not flawless, but it's way, way better than anything else on this show. Yeah, all my booking issues are booking issues for WCW, like every match and show. So it's not a unique thing to this match. So it gives it a leeway for sure. MVP? Uh, surprisingly difficult in a certain area i would say i mean keenan has a lot of fun this show i'm not gonna pick him but he, i enjoyed him a lot even in bad matches for the most part mm-hmm. especially in contrast to shivani who apparently forgot the last 
five years of Hogan and thinks he's the greatest thing that ever existed in mankind. He didn't hating him still for the most part really helped me. Yeah. Match wise, DDP and Benoit as match the night competitors both actually apply. But I, again, I always try to mix mine up a bit unless there's absolutely no way to pick anybody else. So for me, for doing the best he can, winning a really good match, to my opinion, at least on his side of it, I'm going with Sting. Okay. All right. I enjoyed his part of the match. You can argue the booking of how the match was together, but I thought his performance, he had the energy that was lacking a lot of matches. Regardless of whether he succeeded or not, Sting was clearly trying. Exactly. Like, he's, he's the one guy in those last four matches that I think is really, really clearly doing his best. Yeah. I didn't feel like it, it got there as a match still, but I no, can yeah. still appreciate definitely Sting is trying his hardest. It's a real close one for me with him and DDP, though, for sure. Well, then, you'll be pleased, because I am picking DDP. Gotta figure that. Yeah. I thought his strong character work and great offense are in large part responsible for the only match on the card that I genuinely fully enjoyed. Mm -hmm. With it being pretty one-sided, it was left to Paige to keep it interesting, and I think he did a really good job of pacing his performance and keeping up the character bits to draw people in and keep the audience involved, providing the show's only real high point. Yeah, there are people that can have a good match, but they will sometimes forget to or drop the character aspect during it. Mm -hmm. They'll start working a match, and then, oh, right, I'm, I'm playing this bad guy, and then randomly taunt the crowd. Yeah. He's very consistent with that throughout his match. He's, yeah, he, he does a good job of integrating the two sides of his performance. To go back to our, our point about the show overall, Paige is the one guy on the show that I think truly, truly gets, I'm working with the crowd, but I'm also having a match. Yeah. You know, he's doing all the crowd work and taunting and interacting with them all over the place without ever losing the flow of his match. Agreed. Yeah. That's what hits MVP for me. I would have considered one of the announcers, I think, also on a, on on this show if it weren't for the last two matches. Yeah. On those matches, I think their commentary just goes off the rails. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shivani especially for me, yeah. And that wraps up our review of Road Wild 1999. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance at pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. That's the final Road Wild show. So next time we'll be taking a look back at the whole Hog slash Road Wild series. We'll go over series themes, find the series identity, and discuss our favorite and least favorite moments. We'll play some guessing games, hand out our series awards, and of course, reveal what we're covering next. We hope that you'll enjoy taking a look back with us, and see if you have a better memory for the series than Al. Yes, agreed. <laughs> or me, to be frank. Yes. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. He reappears on the August 4th. Or Jimmy, Jimmy, hold on. He reappears on the October 4th Nitro. Okay. Slightly better, because that's the August 4th is before the show. Yeah.